Hey, y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Hardy's two for five dollar breakfast bake goodness into your morning. Choose a biscuit with sausage and egg, biscuit and gravy, or French toast dips. Any two, just five dollars. Hardy's goodness in the making. These items only. Price and participation may vary. Tax not included. There's one that sticks out in my mind um, that it's just there very vividly. It was Op Simpson. Uh, second squad was coming up to the house and there was a guy in a flatbed truck with a vest on and he you know he sat up and he popped himself off and um, he watched it they erased him Very you know bad. and i'm just waiting to hear like the call for the medic on the radio and it was like that like perfect silence it was full-on you know grenade fight and there was 10 guys inside the house uh, they had only they had strategically only had two guys going out at any given time ever because they knew they were you know, uh, being watched. One of the people that squirted out the back, um, you know, I shot and um, he was kind of, um, but he was taking fire from, I think, three different positions as he was running. And he had six holes in him uh, when I got up to him, still alive. And I looked at him, I was like, this is a fucking kid. He's probably 14 years old, best, at best. With the interpreter coming out, come up and, and uh, I remember asking him um, or, you know, through the interpreter, like, you know, what, what would your, you know, what would your parents say that you're here? And he said that, well, they'd be proud of me. Welcome to Mic Drop, the podcast where relevancy is irrelevant and we don't give a shit about your feelings. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, it's both an honor and a pleasure to welcome my next guest to the podcast. He served for four years in the U.S. Army as a Ranger, most of which with the 3rd Ranger Battalion. He did three deployments uh, with them, two to Afghanistan, one to Iraq, and coincidentally, the one with Iraq, the one in Iraq was with our good buddy Nick Irving, who's been on the show uh, a few times. That was his first deployment. Um and Leo's third, so he was uh, the salty old dog for Nick. He was awarded an RCOM with V for Valor and a JCOM with V for Valor also. No, that was no V on the Just, just the, the JCOM. The for, regular uh, old JCOM. Yeah, for uh, for the Red Wing, Operation Red Wings recovery, which uh, for sure we will get into. He is the author of a number of books, both solo and collaboration pieces, uh, some of which are Lest We Forget. On Assimilation, Lucky Joe, which I have a copy of now, uh, signed by Leo, which is pretty awesome. In Love and War, uh, With a Pen, War and After, and War and Pieces. Did I miss any solo projects? That's most of them. I think that covers it, yeah. Uh, he is now a full-time author, author, and if McSteamy and McDreamy had a love child during Ranger School, ladies and gentlemen, he would fucking be it. Welcome to the stage, Leo Jenkins. Thank you so much, Mike. Thanks. That was great. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming on. I know uh, you live in fucking Mexico now, which is a, is a story in and of itself. But uh, you're back here uh, in the Dallas area for uh, for this book, I'm assuming. Or? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. 
So is that uh, like a release thing or what, how's that working? Yeah, we're releasing it kind of right now. It's like I said, you've got now, I think the second copy that anybody has. Um, so it's not, it hasn't hit anyone's hands yet. Yeah. Um, it's uh, uh, being sold now and I think they'll ship out uh, next week sometime. Yeah, right on. I'd like to take a quick second uh, to shout out and thank our sponsor for today's podcast, Origin Labs and Jocko Fuel. Jocko Fuel is a great product. Uh, he's got a ton of products actually within the Jocko Fuel line. Uh, the guests and I enjoy them on the show. And outside, I take a lot of the supplements. Uh, I've got some of the Origin Lab jeans, uh, boots, geese, and uh, it's just all around American industry. Uh, they do a fantastic job really re-revolutionizing American industry from start to finish. It's all American made, uh, all American sourced. Everything start to finish is made right there in-house, and they really do a phenomenal job creating the products and fulfilling the whole ball of wax. They've been a huge supporter of the Mic Drop podcast for a while now, and I really can't thank Jocko Fuel and Origin Labs enough for the job that they do for us, and so thank you to you guys. I'd also like to say thank you to our other sponsor, Resilience Premium CBD. Resilience is excited to offer all Mic Drop listeners a 20% off discount on all products for two weeks from when this podcast is live using the discount code MICDROP at checkout. That's two words, MICDROP at checkout. I'd also like to say that Resilience is a great company uh, that works in conjunction with Trico CBD and all military veterans and first responders receive 35% off. Yes, that's 35% off for all military veterans and first responders. And that's uh, through the military and first responders program. You just have to sign up at resiliencecbd.com slash military first responders discount. Uh, in terms of about resilience, generally speaking, it's a premium CBD that I use. Again, it works in conjunction with the Tricos brand for the everyday athlete. Uh, that's www.resiliencecbd.com. And resilience was uh, really born with the founders who uh, are military veterans as well. Personally experienced the effects uh, and impact that CBD had on their own mental and physical obstacles. Their focus was sharper, mental stress was calmed, fitness stamina increased, and their bodies felt less pain, inflammation after super intense workouts. Uh, a lot of times, most people and, and people are able to either wean off entirely or significantly reduce pain management, ther uh, pain management therapy. This is a shared vision among the founders that this uh, incredible supplement had not only changed their lives, but had the power to provide unbelievable benefits to family, friends, athletes, fellow veterans, and ultimately the entire fitness community. So big shout out to Resilience for their product as well as the Trico stuff. Uh, we sure appreciate their support. Uh, Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter? Uh, Lord of the Rings. Is that right? Do you yeah. hate Harry Potter or you just I don't hate Harry Potter. I think um, just it, time is on Lord of the Rings side. It's, uh, you know, it's um, the writing behind it, uh, not to take anything away from uh uh from harry potter but it's just it's you know lord of the rings has stood the test of time yeah uh, where harry potter it's the new kid in town you know? yeah no for sure i i am curious from an author's standpoint uh to think of of tolkien's ability to uh, to think of that back when he did is to me the, probably the most impressive part of it the intricacy of the world that he created, you yeah. know, there's maps that he created and he wanted to make sure that the distances in the maps um, were accurate. And given the, the height of the Hobbit, how far could they really walk in a given day and to, to create that level of accuracy in a, in a world that you essentially created in your own head while, while still unfurling um, 
an epic tale. You know, it was accurate yeah. in in the sense of this uh, total creation. Yeah. Do you think uh, he was crazy and or on drugs when he fucking did anything? I hope so. I think most <laughs> writers are either one, the other, or a combination yeah. of the two. Yeah, I hear you. At least the successful ones, the ones we want to read. Yeah. You know, over and over and over again. Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, do you, uh, who is your favorite author and the book by them? Oh, um, it kind of, it, it changes. There's, a, there's people who I kind of fall into pockets with. Um, I really enjoy Steinbeck's writing, um, John Steinbeck. Um, I, I, I love what Kerouac did with prose, um, uh, and freed up. I'm on, I've been on a real big Kurt Vonnegut kick lately. Um, and I think Slaughterhouse Five is, is one of those books that everyone should read, um, the experience that um, he had as a as a POW in World War II, and then surviving the, the firebombing at Dresden, uh, to be able to take that and put it into um, to put it into a book um, was incredible. But uh, what he did with the parallel story storylines and everything else as well, like there was there was a, a, a very it was a very profound incident that he was involved with, but he also wrote it incredibly well and yeah. creatively. Why? I mean, this is my perception. So if, if it's inaccurate, by all means, fucking correct me. But to me, it seems like there, there aren't really the classic author caliber writers anymore. Like even the Crichtons and the, you know, the, the more, the, uh, what's the other fucking guy, Tom Clancy, I mean, shit like that, that, that are super popular. Even Stephen King. I mean, I guess maybe is, is one of the last, uh, verging on brilliant type of authors, at least from my perspective. But it, it seems like, I guess, that that there isn't that level of, of magnitude uh, and incompetency when it comes to uh, writers nowadays. Do you think that that's accurate? It's a tough row to plow now. Um, with, there's there's a lot more to contend with. And, and the writers of those, uh, those previous eras, um, people were entertaining, they were being entertained by by books, by my magazine articles, short stories, like reading was um, entertainment. And now there are so many other forms of entertainment um, that um, to, you know, it, you're not, you just don't have it as many people that might have been a, a, a writer of a book, an author. Um, they might be writing screenplays now for, and you know, that talent is going to storytelling in other places um, to make movies, to like actually be able to make a living off of your writing. Like the uh, script for back to the future as an example. Yes, that yeah. was um, <laughs> definitely the one I was thinking of. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, to me, I guess uh, agreed. It, it, it for sure makes sense that it's, it's harder to compete with now, I guess. Uh, it just seem, it seems like, I don't know, maybe with technology and education and everything being, uh, you know, kind of watered down and generic by comparison to what it seems like it used to be. Maybe, maybe that's a factor. Hell, I don't know. But, um, what's the most valuable thing that you learned in medic school? Um, how to be calm in a, in a, in a situation that would typically excite other people. Right. Um, I think that that was, uh, the number one thing that, um, um, the valuable thing that a medic has and it, like first and foremost is when something is really fucked up and, and somebody's hurt is to be able to remain calm yeah. um, and to convey that calm to them, to calm them down. Um, and, you know, uh, that definitely was something that it's valuable in the sense of emergency medicine. But then if you can take that and apply that to any other situation that might be tumultuous, might be um, difficult, that might be exciting, that if you can keep your calm in those in those types of things, if it's, you know, surfing a big wave or, um, um, you know, any other any other thing um, that 
you know, the cooler heads will prevail. And, and through, um, through that medic course, I definitely learned how to, to just be calm in a situation that, that, um, would be kind of exciting otherwise. Would you say that, that you learned that more there than say ranger school or being at a ranger battalion? Yeah, I think that was something that was, um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Medic school is one of those situations where, because you have a patient who is freaking out and you're, you're not only trying to maintain your own calm, you're trying to instill it in them. Um, and the, the repetitions, the reps that you get in that day in and day out, you know, doing trauma lanes, um, is, um, yeah, I mean, you, you have to come away with that. What's the biggest bedside manner difference between army medics and fucking civilian doctors? No thumbs in the ass. <laughs> That's one of them. But I, um, the three P's of special operations medic, uh, medicine, right? So pain is the patient's problem uh, <laughs> is probably the biggest uh, difference. It's that sounds like the U S military yeah. across the board. Motrin and ice fucker. Get back yeah. to work. Uh, what is your daily routine? Um, it varies a little bit. I liked it. Um, I, for the longest time I was like a no routine person. Yeah. I was like, I just, you know, whatever it is, but right now, um, let me take one step back. Let's talk about your morning routine. Sorry. I but, said daily. I meant yeah. morning. Um, <clears throat> I get up a little before six, um, try to beat my toddler, you know, uh, so I can meditate I meditate. Like for, you literally beat him. I, I beat her. Yeah. Only <laughs> <laughs> I try to beat my fucking toddler but right when <laughs> try, I wake up, try to try to try to beat her out of bed. Right. <laughs> Otherwise she'll be coming in and climbing on my face and demanding waffles. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, meditation for probably the first 15 minutes. I have a, make a cup of coffee and, uh, I go straight to the, to the break and, and, um, have my cup of coffee while the, you know, the, the first waves are rolling in and, and then I'll go out and surf for an hour and a half, two hours, take my daughter to, to, uh, preschool, uh, go to the gym for a little bit. And then I'll go into my library and either read or write, um, for most of the rest of the day. What, uh, what kind of, I guess, direction do you take that and, and what, what inspires you that way? I guess, like, you know, if you decide to write something or, or read something or like, like what drives what you do, how you do it, what you write about, what you read about it. Is there anything? It's just, it's really just whatever the fuck I feel like doing anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> like it's, it's real, it's impulsive, you know, yeah. um, it's, you know, what, I mean, are there, well, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it literally, it's like, uh, there's not really, uh, there's a, a few big writing projects that I'm doing right now. I'm, I'm working on a couple of different books. Um, and I'm, I'm perpetually writing and, and trying to tinker with different genres and different things. So if I'm feeling, you know, a certain way when I wake up and I'm like, I, I feel like I need to write today, then I write. If I don't feel that way, then I spend that time reading. Are there ever days where you don't feel like doing either? And you're just like, fuck it. It's Pornhub all day. I mean, but it's rare, but yeah, it happens, man. Um, you know, and like where I'm at, like I, we don't have, like we have a TV, but we don't have any channels. We have like Netflix, right? And there, occasionally I'm like, I just, fuck, I, I would like to just sit on the couch all day and just watch sports, yeah. you know, and I don't ever do that, but it definitely, it hits uh, maybe like once a month. Yeah. Um, and we, I usually just resolve, like, we're, I'm just going to, I'm just going to watch movies today. Yeah. Is, uh, you mentioned, uh, so you have a, a daughter. Is, is uh, her mom there, or is it just you guys? Or uh, yes, um, she's there with her now. I, I hope. Uh, otherwise, <laughs> my, my daughter is probably stealing hubcaps off of yeah. you know somebody's car. <laughs> That's good shit. What uh, what role does she play in in your day to day professionally? That way, um, 
the daughter or uh, the wife the wife so she works from home as well um uh, she's a she's a therapist and um she does most of her stuff on online and it's it's been uh it's been an interesting thing because it's like the two of us and our daughters our family of three there's no other family members and we live in a small town rural mexico and um it's yeah to find the balancing act of when she works and when i work has been a journey and we're kind of tuned into that now where uh, again now that our daughter's doing you know preschool um we have about 20 hours a week where that's occupied but we cut we we shift back and forth where there's certain days of the week where she has all of her clients you know uh stacked up and those are the days when i'm picking the kid up from school and hanging out with her going getting ice cream and all that stuff um and so we're yeah we're we're kind of in that 50 50 uh, i'm gonna back i'm gonna walk that back i'm probably more like 60 40 she takes the bulk of the um, of the parenting responsibility so I can yeah. lock myself up in my, in my closet and yeah. pretend like I'm writing. I, I was planning on getting into the whole Mexico thing, uh, far later, but, uh, since we're talking about it, I'm curious why Mexico is it, sur- is it surfing? Is it cost of living? Is it what? It was a combination of things. Um, so I, I, I was traveling, um, uh, I'd sold everything I owned minus a backpack. I was living in Denver, owned some gyms there, and I kind of just took off and and then traveled and um, was went once around the world going west, and then ended up uh, in Alaska. I wanted to drink a beer in every state, and I was driving down, and um, I got to this, you know, I, got, I went through through Baja, the peninsula. I got to the end of it, and I was going to stay one day in this little town, and um, and then take the ferry over to mainland Mexico and, uh, continued driving South. So I got to South America and I went into this seedy little dive bar, uh, that was there, um, called the little Lebowski lounge. And it was really, <laughs> it was really great. Uh, I mean, a mean white Russian, you know, yeah. and, um, I met a girl there and, um, we moved in together, I think four days later Jesus. and yeah, we lived together in that little town, uh, for about six months until she got, um, detained for being an undocumented worker uh, there. She was teaching yoga classes when, <laughs> and she didn't have the paperwork. And so is she American? She's Canadian. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so uh, my, my, how the tables have turned. Yeah. 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 Uh, my, how the so, tables. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, uh, she was asked, uh, somewhat politely to get the fuck out of the country. Right. Yeah. So, um, and, uh, so then we kicked out and we, we went and traveled all through Central America together and, um, came back to that same little town. Uh, we liked it. We had friends there. We didn't really intend on necessarily settling down, but it was like, it was, you know, there was a piece of land for sale, bought the land and it just kind of, it just kind of happened that way. Um, and, uh, it provided all of the things like that little area provided all of the things that we both really wanted. Um, I love the freedom of the place. It is, uh, you know, it is really like the last bastion of the once wild West, you know, it's dirt roads and, there's not a radar gun within a hundred miles of my house. And, you know, it is, it's, you take care of your own shit there, you know, like nobody's coming, um, you know, like, um, they do have a volunteer fire department, but more often than not, they don't have gas to put in the the truck to come out, you know, like you got to take care of your own shit there. So I like that, you know, I like that freedom. Um, and it, it has that there's a surf break out in front, which is really nice. Um, and, uh, there is an international airport to get the family in an hour, hour and a half away. So, uh, it, it checked a lot of boxes and if flying out of Cabo to get here is, you know, it's a two hour flight. It's easy. It's, you know, it's, it's really, I don't feel like it's any different than if I were to live in Phoenix and come here, you know, um, 
it's uh, as far as like accessing any major metropolitan city in the United States. Um, so it checks it checks a lot of those boxes, yeah. and the cost of living is really really pretty good as well. Yeah. So an American vet and a Canadian yoga teacher walk into a bar in Baja. Like that's the start of a fucking joke. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a start of a book that yeah. I'm working on now. Yeah, yeah. yeah but um, so in terms of the, the freedom and nobody's coming and, and whatever, I'm curious. I mean, you know, you you hear. I mean, I've spent some time in Mexico, but um, when, you know, being stationed in San Diego for 12 years, I I went down there a, a number of times, but. You know, I haven't been down there in Christ 15 years, probably, uh, or so. And I guess I'm curious, you know, from from what you read, hear, see in the media, which I know a lot of times is misrepresented, but I still, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely aware that there's a, a significant cartel presence and, and, you know, Wild West type of handling your own shit. You got two gringos down there, you know, raising a family like do you get fucked with or no. I mean, and, and I guess why not? Like how, how is it that easy for just the two of you and, and a toddler to, to live there completely unimpeded? Is it, is it just super misrepresented in the, well, so it's, you know, Mexico is a big place. Um, and there are parts of Mexico that are, uh, dangerous. There are parts of the United States that I wouldn't, you know, enter in by myself, you know, like there's their neighborhoods. There's like, so, where we live, it's um, it's a it's an agricultural slash fishing village of around two thousand people. Um, there's not like a cartel interest there. Now you go to the the, the capital city of Baja Sur, uh, which is La Paz, and yeah, there's a presence there. No, we'll go there. You know, we go there do shopping or whatever. You just you don't go down a dark alleyway at two o'clock in the morning looking to buy coke, and you're going to be you know all right. You know, don't do don't don't make poor decisions um with stuff but no i mean the people who are around us they're incredible salt of the earth hard-working amazing people um just like you'll find anywhere if you're you know if if you're looking and yeah there there is um there is a cartel presence in that state uh but it's like you know saying there's a gang presence in the state of texas well there are parts of texas where there are gang members you know um that doesn't mean that the 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 whole of the the, the place, the whole of the state is dangerous. Yeah. Um, there, I mean, there, there have been, I, I will say that there have been, um, um, I guess like a cartel, I say executions, but hits pretty close to my house. Um, that's happened. Um, but they were interested in one another. Yeah. Uh, and it's happened once in, in four years. Okay. So it, it, it occurs, uh, but it's definitely the exception, not yeah. the rule. I guess in, in terms of, you know, the most, U.S. citizens, you know, thinking of living there and, and now, you know, there isn't the same constitution that you grew up with. Guns are a, a totally different story, uh, you know, in terms of legally owning them and, and whatever. Is there any um, struggle with, with either of those? Or, I mean, it sounds like there there isn't, but uh, how do you? It's at, like, I don't think about firearms anymore because like you don't, you don't, um, it's not really an issue. People don't they don't they don't have them where i live um so and yeah i mean the really really bad people do and yeah uh, i'm i'm working on the legal channels of being able to have a firearm myself there now finally um it's just a lot of paperwork especially for uh, for a gringo for a, uh, but now that i'm a legal permanent resident there are channels that i can go through and and the solution for me is like you know i have a i have a very well trained 65 pound pit bull and um you know he's He's getting the job done, you know, as far as yeah. home security. Um, so, 
but like I came, I remember I came back into the States after being uh, there for a couple of years and I was doing something in Denver and I was on a campus and uh, I've been back in the States for maybe six hours and um, uh, there was an active shooter on the campus and it just brought me back to this world like, oh shit, like that, like that's a concern here is like there can be an active shooter and um and i just it i just don't think about that where i'm at yeah i, I guess i mean statistically it, it, it at least from from my perspective it doesn't seem like similarly to the car cartel stuff there you know like yeah you know the odds of you being at a campus where where one happened are are obviously there because it did but you know to me it it i i would uh hedge a bet that that you know um from a, a percentage likelihood standpoint it's probably pretty similar yeah yeah it's it's the exception not the rule right um but yeah the the yeah it's 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 an interesting evening out point right because like uh so again the, the idea of you know the old saloon concept of you know being in a bar or something if trouble kicks up i am like 99.999% sure that nobody in that room has a firearm. Mm-hmm. So there is, there's a, there's a, um, there's an equal playing field when it comes to it. And there's been plenty of fist fights, you know, in, in, in those places. And, you know, that's where it ends. Um, and you, I, there's not like a thought of like, oh, somebody's going to go out in a car and get a gun, like that kind of thing, which is nice. At the same time, I'd like to be the one person who has the gun in the, you know, in the environment in the, in the, in the event that there's, uh, that there's, that there, that there is that. But, um, it is usually, it's the, the, the police and the cartels that have them. Um, and you can usually tell who the police are and who the cartels are. Um, just like walking around. Yeah, there, again, it's it's the, the 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 cartel presence in in my neighborhood in my town is pretty non-existent. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the the overall politics there, um, like how, how would you describe that for you know for a U.S. citizen to, by comparison? Uh, well, I think most people where I live just openly acknowledge that the, pol- the politicians are pretty corrupt, and um, here there's like a um, Head in the sand. Yeah, it's kind of like no, not, not, well, your guy's corrupt, but not my guy's not. You know, yeah. uh, sort of a thing. And and there, it's kind of like, well, they all are. You yeah. know, so yeah. you know, that's the that's the situation. Yeah, hey, amen. Uh, we'll get back to that as we uh, uh, come full circle. But uh, I do want to still talk a little bit about uh, some of the gun stuff and, and what have you. But uh, where did you grow up? I grew up uh, kind of all around Arizona. Oh, okay. Yeah. And what uh, what were the circumstances in terms of you know family, parents, siblings, uh, house household, etc.? Um, so my my parents split when I was about five. Um, my father uh, was a thirty year firefighter paramedic. Uh, he just uh, retired a few years back from Peoria Fire Department. Uh, my mom at the time of their divorce was a was a nurse. Um, pr- most likely, where the you know influence for me to to want to be a medic came from. Um, my, my mother, um, became addicted to drugs and, uh, kind of took a really hard path there. Um, and we ended up, um, we lived with her for a while through that and then ended up living with uh, my father and he raised myself and my two sisters pretty much on his own while he was, um, both a full-time, uh, fire captain and paramedic and, um, part to full-time flight medic. So he's working two full-time jobs. Um, to support uh, his three kids and um, 
Yeah, that's uh, during that time. Did you see your mom much, or, or? yeah? I mean, we li- I lived with her up until like grade, uh, I think like grade five. I mean, uh, one, once she kind of went down the hard path, and you lived with your dad, was that? Uh, yeah, it it became sporadic, and then it's been like like pockets of years, like seven or eight years, where like no contact at all. Really? Yeah. Um, Even now? Yes. No yeah. Sure. And so, like, we've um, and I've. Yeah, it was one of those things that, that, that I kind of just had to, to cut myself off from that relationship because um, it was just inc- it was pretty toxic. Um, yeah. And um, to where it's like, oh, yeah, I'll be there for, you know, this event in your life and then not be there and not hear from her for, you know, at all anything maybe a year later. And then it just kind of pops back in. And and after decades of that, you kind of have to go, OK, like, yeah. you're, you're not going to show up for me. Um, so, um you know, I wrote some of these things out and, um, in, I think, and with a pen and kind of just get, getting them out on paper. And, and, um, it was last year, um, she, she discovered my writings and, and, um, like when I was, when I went in the military, like she didn't even know that I was in the military until after I had graduated from Ranger and Doc. Right. Wow. So I'd have been in the army for almost a year before she even knew I had left. Um, and same thing with a lot of my writing. She didn't know that I had written anything until after like I had a couple of books out and she found um she found some of that poetry that I'd written and it's about some you know um probably some of the harder moments you know she was she was suicidal she held a gun to her head and and um kind of was blaming us for it when I was a kid like witnessing this and so I um you know I I told her I was like I want to read this to you to your face and she sat and and she took it and and I, I read it out to her and we we discussed it and and um, it was a really, it was actually a really great moment because I was able, uh, she was able to apologize uh, for a lot of that, and I was able to forgive her and say, hey, "Look, you know," and and it's there's so, there's so much power in that forgiveness um, to to kind of clear that off, and you know we're all people, you know, trying to do trying to you know <laughs> figure out this life, and just because you're a parent doesn't mean that you know everything and that you make all the right answers or, or right choices, and she made a lot of poor choices. Um, and, um, but I, I really felt like it was, it was probably one of the, one of the, um, better things I've done in my adult life was to be able to just say, look, I forgive you. I'm not holding that over you anymore. I'm not, I'm not holding on to it anymore. It's not dragging me down anymore. So, um, yeah, so that relationship has, um, I don't want to say maybe not fully mended, but it is, we're good now, you know, and that's a really good feeling. Um, has, yeah. has uh, her involvement in your life increased significantly since then? Yeah, I encourage her as much as possible to be involved in her granddaughter's life and my child's life. And I've explained this to her that my, my daughter doesn't understand any of the mistakes that she made. And so now she has a she has a perfect chance now completely clean slate with this human. And she needs to show the fuck up. Yeah. Um, and not make these same mistakes again. So um, but. Yeah, it's it's um, you know, maybe people change, maybe they don't. She's got, but uh, like that's at least that's at least an opportunity that she has now to yeah. do something um, that where she made mistakes in the past is to to show the fuck up now. Yeah, uh, what uh, what drugs was were, uh, did she partake in? Um, to, methamphetamines, a lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, and do you know if there's still still an issue with that or is she pretty good to go on? I, you know, I, th- I don't think that when you've spent that much time indulged in that, um, uh, in those types of chemicals that it, you just stop, uh, you know, um, without significant amounts of, um, help and, um, 
And I have to, I would have to, I would be pretty naive to say that that isn't still occurring to some degree. Yeah. Uh, how, um, how is the relationship with your dad now? Is it? Uh, my dad's my fucking hero. Yeah. He's that's amazing, awesome. man. Um, <laughs> yeah, he, he truly is. I mean, like, yeah, he, he had three kids to raise on his own and like it, it was structured as such that he was still having to pay her child support while he was raising three kids. Um, and you know, there's, it's getting a little bit better, but a lot of times in those situations, the the guy doesn't get a very fair shake. Oh, I know it. Um, and, uh, and, and he showed the fuck up, you know, like even doing all that, every wrestling match in high school, he was there for it. You know, he would, you know, he would show up with the guys, the whole, the whole engine company would come down, you know, and they would, but they would fuck He would be there. You know, he showed up time and time again. He came to my, um, he came to, uh, my medic graduation there at Bragg and, um, you know, all the guys in his fire department, this was in 2004, they all palmed him twenties and fifties and said, go get those guys drunk. And like my dad was there and it was, he was, it was, it was cool, man. It was, it was like, you know, him being a paramedic for a while and me just graduating, but he's sitting at his table, his bar, uh, outside of Bragg and in, there's probably 20 of us. And, you know, he's, he's like, and that guy's a seal. He's a Navy seal. Like, fucking, <laughs> whoa, man. Like that guy's a green, holy shit, man. Yeah. You're like, and just buying beers for everybody. And, um, yeah, it's cool. Like, uh, the, yeah, he's, my dad is definitely my hero and he's probably my best friend yeah. on top of that. So needless to say, he has a huge role in your life still and, and all that. Yeah. I mean, he's still guiding me through this shit that I'm, you know, I'm like, I'm calling him up. I'm like, Hey dad, you ever have an existential crisis around 40? You know, it's like, uh, you know, like, like having these conversations. The right with answer? Yeah. We, yeah. We, we sit around and, you know, over the phone for, you know, hours and, and sip whiskey and, uh, him on his back porch and me on my deck. And, uh, yeah, he's, he's a great man. I'm, yeah. I'm very, I don't, I don't think I'd be sitting here right now without that kind of, uh, without his influence directly. Yeah. No, that's, that's really awesome to hear. Um, does he keep in contact with your mom at all? Or are they, no, I'm, I'm trying, I'm, I'm encouraging him to do, do something similar to say, Hey, I forgive you. Cause she, she, I mean, she raked him over the coals pretty good in a lot of different ways through that yeah. whole process. And, uh, I know she's sorry for it, but you know, yeah, like being sorry, doesn't change shit. You know, you, you, you have to like, you have to do put in the work and say, Hey, yeah. look, um, I fucked up and, um, uh, I, I'm going to, it's going to be different now, you yeah. know, and make it be different. Not just say it. So, yeah. uh, you wrestled in high school. Yeah. I wasn't very good. Yeah. Any uh, other sports, uh, throughout high school. Um, that was kind of it. I ran a bit. Um, I, I was more interested in music yeah. than anything else. Um, played, played drums and, and a few different bands. And most of that was just to get, you know, girls attention, <laughs> but it's similar <laughs> to why we play sports, you know, as, yeah. um, what, uh, what weight did you wrestle at? I was a small guy, man. I, so I entered high school. I was, I was four foot 11, 98 pounds yeah. on, uh, when I, um, beginning of my, so like I wrestled one of threes, uh, and then by my senior year, I was wrestling 55s. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. And Hit you, the weights again, because yeah. chicks dig dudes with, with, with cannons, you know? Oh, no. So, what, uh, at, at what point in high school or thereabouts did you kind of make the decision to, uh, that you wanted to join the army or, or when did that happen? So, um, yeah, I was, so it was my 19th birthday. It was September 11th, 2001. I was in the fire Academy. Um, and my, like I, since I was six years old, you know, watching my dad, like I wanted to be a fireman. That was it. And, um, when that happened, it was like, oh shit. Um, and, um, I ended up getting hired on. I was a fireman for about a year and a half. And that thought was still lingering. And what we were seeing was images of 
you know, 19, 20 year olds uh, all over the news getting ready to to go into Iraq. And we'd already gone into Afghanistan. And but I just kept seeing this thing, the, these images. And I'm like, that's I'm I'm 20. These are my peers. And I have my dream. I have my American dream is settled. You know, 20 years old. I'm on a fire department. I can I can, you know, I've got it. This is what I've always wanted. But I didn't feel like I had earned it. And I I just felt like I needed to go and to earn that thing. And to, if those, if, if my peers were going, I'm going, um, it was, uh, yeah. So it was, it was like, I had a talk with a dad, you know, and like, that's, he's obviously very supportive in that moment, but it's like, um, you, you realize like you're, you're, you've got a really great job right now with security and all of that. And America's entering into another war. We got two of them going on. No, no parent really wants their kid to go and, and go through that. So, but he was still very supportive and, um, so, yeah, it was, you know, September 11th, I think for, for myself as well as many of my peers was a catalyst um, towards joining the military where I wouldn't have done it otherwise. It wasn't like I like I grew up playing G.I. Joe's and all that, but I, I it wasn't like that's what I'm going to do. It was that action that uh, created the reaction of going in. Yeah. So was, was there a specific uh, catalyst or inspiration that drove you to Army and Rangers or? Yes, um, it was a mentor, and actually, it was a, a this guy Bob Vaughn, who was a, a pararescue man for about ten years. Um, he was hired on to my dad's fire department. My dad was his recruit training officer in the academy, and um, my dad, knowing uh, to, to not maybe not to the entire degree and severity of, of Bob Vaughn's experiences, but knowing that he had plenty of experience in the military, it was like if you're going to go. If you're serious about this, you're going to go talk to this guy first and see what he has to say. And um, I had originally uh, um, was going to sign a contract to, to be a, I think at the time it was a 91 whiskey combat medic. And I told him this and I was all excited about it. I was like, I'm going to go be a medic, you know. And, um, and I think his exact words were, um, uh, for a swinging dick like you, the Rangers is the only place to go. <laughs> and I, I was like, the, the what, you know, kind of thing. And he's like, no, look at, you need to look into being a Ranger medic. If you're going to go and, and if you're going to go and do this, go and go and really fucking do it. And I was like, okay. And I, you know, I started looking and I saw the, the medical courses, the 18 Delta course and everything. And there was very little resources about this at the time to be able to find it. And I, 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 I think it was something like an army website that just said something about like, this is a, a really challenging course. Um, and I found like a little video clip uh, somewhere um, that had them doing somebody doing the trauma, uh, the trauma lanes. And I was like, holy shit, like that's okay. Yeah. That seems like a challenge. And um, yeah, so it was, it was pretty much, it was pretty much Bob Vaughn who, who pointed me in that direction. He had good, you know, good advice. And now I think um, I'm pretty sure one of his sons, um, is is on the teams now. Oh, he sure. got out of buds here about two years ago. But, oh, that's cool. Um, yeah, he's a war. They're a warrior family for yeah. certain. Did you find that uh, being a firefighter and growing up wrestling and having a dad that uh, sounds like really inspired you? Were, were those driving forces in terms of uh, you know making the the process of going through being a or certifying to be uh, considered a ranger? All, all of that did, did it help with that or, or what absolutely did you yeah. find it was I mean, still you, still a challenge you know absolutely and, and there's um having had a little bit of life experience you know and I, I wasn't very old i went in at 20 years old but having that year year and a half on the fire department and working as an emt and seeing a little bit of trauma 
um, uh, beforehand was incredibly helpful. Just having a little bit of something to lean on. And then obviously, um, you know, sports beforehand where you're learning about, you know, uh, dedication, hard work, teamwork, all of that, all of that, uh, you know, those, those core things to be able to take that in, uh, very imperative. My dad and I would hunt, uh, quite a bit growing up, uh, in throughout Arizona, um, go, you know, Havelina hunting, elk hunting, where we'd walk, you know, 12, 14 miles in a day and, you know, with weight on your back and, and, um, from the time I was probably, you know, the, the, the humps got longer and longer, but from probably six years old on, I was shooting and, and hunting and hiking, um, all of those experiences. Absolutely. You know, you get to the point where, um, through those, uh, through those particular selection processes, but then actually in Afghanistan, uh, that like you, you, you absolutely lean on the foundation of those experiences are very helpful. Yeah. Was there uh, parts of, of ranger school uh, or rip? Uh, was it rip or rasp? It's were... rasp now. It was I, like it was rip. Um, like I had like I was in the last hard class as we all were, <laughs> uh, but it was the last. Uh, it was actually three weeks at the time, and and now rasp. Uh, the entire selection process I think is more like two months. Oh, okay. um, it's different phases of it. And... <clears throat> was was there any part of that that really fucking challenged? It was a legit gut check. Um, the cold for me, um, uh, yeah, I don't like being cold I'm from Phoenix and I, you know, and I, there's a reason, there's another reason why I live in Mexico is cause I, I don't like to be cold. And we, I went through in December and, um, yeah, it was icy and, and cold and, um, but you know, that's not a, you know, that's, that's enough to make a person uncomfortable. Yeah. But, you know. Do you remember how much weight you lost in uh, ranger school? Um, no, no, uh, wasn't too significant. No. Yeah. Or it must not have been, I guess, if you don't remember, right? Uh, all right. So getting into, you, you go through all of the training. Uh, you you wind up at the 3rd Ranger Battalion, uh, which is in Savannah, right? Um, or uh, Fort Col- Benning. Columbus, Benning, yeah. Okay. Um, wh- what uh, what was that like checking in and, uh, you know, again, with the backdrop of you spending some time as a firefighter, you go through training. What was your kind of an initial impression of, of checking in at the battalion? Well, yeah, I was just... I it's an interesting being a medic because you've been in the army now for a year and a half, but you really know nothing about your unit. You know, nothing like, you know, the, the, the medic stuff, but as far as like how to be a ranger, it like, yeah, there was that selection process before. But again, when I went through that three weeks, it was really just the gut check bit. And, um, so it's, um, yeah, like I, I was in, I was kind of naive to what the job actually was. I had the components for it, but I didn't put it all together. So I showed up and it was a ghost town. I mean, third bat was already deployed. And so I got there and I was like, okay, um, packed an aid bag and I got put on a, you know, I got put on a plane to meet everybody. And, um, was in landed in Bagram and thought that I was then with my guys and this is where I'm going to be. And I was there for a few days and like, no, you're actually going to get pushed out, um, to, uh, to Salerno Ford operating base there. And, um, that's where your guys are. Well, so it was like drinking from a fire hose. Huh? Yeah. It was like, yes. a, you know, like this whole, like, are, okay, are, is, are these my guys? Are these my guys? Who are yeah. my, you know, and just getting fucking the shit smoked out of you the whole time. Cause like, you're just the cherry guy. They don't, you know, you're the, you know, the guy coming in that as far as they know, you're, you've been in, you know, you're, you're one of the, the, the new guys that just, just got out of rip. Um, so, um, I finally got there and it was like a, it was like picking teams for dodgeball. Like there, the, there was probably 15, uh, cherries, uh, you know, brand new privates, uh, you know, in this formation and the two platoon sergeants were there. It was like, I'll take the big blonde one in the back and I'll take <laughs> the next, you know, like uh, to kind of divvy up these, these, these new guys. And I'm standing there like, Oh shit, man. Like this is how, this is how this goes. But, um, 
yeah, it was, it was just, it was, it was a different kind of experience because they were already forward deployed. And, um, and I was just another one of the new guys. They didn't, I think even initially they were like, Oh wait, they didn't realize, they didn't realize it was a medic, you know, until I got to where I was going. And, and it was just, it was a lot of the the smoke, the smokings and and all that kind of shit. But so from the time that you showed up into Afghanistan until you were out doing shit, what was that time period? How, how long was that? Um, that deployment wasn't much of a ruckus. Uh, it, so like there was, um, I think it was like Ramadan or something was going on. It was just real quiet where we were at. Like we did a few missions, but it was, it was nothing terribly serious. Um, it was, you know, it was probably four or five days, six days from the time that I got there. And I, I was just like, I hadn't, I mean, all throughout medic course, like I didn't, we didn't shoot. Yeah. So, and like in all the holdover time between, um, you know, graduating and we didn't even shoot in a rip at the time they do that they do that now but it was just like it's the selection process then once you get to battalion then your your team leader squad leader are going to tune you up on all that shit so like i hadn't i hadn't fired a weapon since basic training and it had been like it'd been almost two years and then they're like here's your m4 like all right we're going out the door and i'm like wait what like fuck i didn't even zero this thing like you know like like, well you're you're the medic don't fucking worry about just sit in the back and if anybody starts bleeding like you know so it was like this shit uh, you know like uh i don't uh, you know like i okay it was a real crash course i was drinking from the fire hose for certain um and i knew how to do a trauma lane yeah. You know, but I didn't know how to be a ranger medic. It's yeah. a, it's a different thing. It's putting all the pieces together and it took some time. And I, luckily I had, um, I had a fantastic senior medic who, who tuned me up, squared me up and, um, and other guys who, uh, who wanted to see me succeed. And, uh, after they first tried to break me off to make sure that it was, you know, like, yeah. they're like, all right, you know, day one here, we're going to go for a run and see if you can keep up. And, you know, luckily I did. And it was like, all right, you seem like you're squared away. So now we're going to, we're going to, we're going to get you dialed in. Yeah. God damn. Uh, so you wrap up that first deployment. Um, nothing crazy happens. You went back, and, and how long were you home before you had to, to redeploy? Uh, six months. And during that time, was it still drinking? For, like, did you get kind of more up to speed on everything? Well, then, yeah, then you get back to battalion, and I was a, I was a cherry fuck again. I was a new guy because, like, I had been on this uh, Ford operating so I was out at Salerno with my platoon. But I didn't know any of the other guys in the company. So everybody gets back and the other, you know, the other three platoons are like, who the fuck are you, new guy? You know, I'm like, well, I, you know, oh, shit, I'm, I'm the new guy all over again. You know, this is yeah. like the fifth time I've been the new guy, you know, in the, in the two years I've been in. And um, so then then it was learning how to live in Ranger Battalion. And it's like um, it's it's not an easy unit to stay in. I mean, it's, you know, up until the point where, you know, you make you make rank. And even then, man, that's like constant scrutiny. Um, every little thing, you know, they're looking at it. And, uh, at least at that time for certain, I'm sure it's probably similar, but, um, it's, it was, you had to earn it every yeah. single day. Uh, and I was the new guy and I got, yeah, I got the, I got the, the checks over yeah. and over and over again. Were there any, uh, instances where you butted heads with anybody or they, they really fucking railroaded you or, or yeah. was just, yeah, what yeah. Happened there? Yeah. So, you know, after all this, um, you know, you get to a certain point where like, I'm fucking, I'm a grown up now, man. You know, yeah. like, um, you know, I've been through all this stuff. I, I, you know, now it's been two deployments and I've, you know, I've, I feel like I've kind of like proven myself at least enough to not get fucked with about little shit. And there was one particular squad leaders, E6, I think I was an E4, uh, that just constantly, he was just riding my shit. Like he felt like, 
like my senior medic wasn't riding my shit hard enough. And it wasn't that I was ate up. He was just looking for things, maybe thought he was being a good leader or something like that. And I finally, I was like, we're going to fucking go. I don't even give a shit, you know? And like, we're, it's going to go hard. Like, um, it, stitches are going to be required. And I remember like he, he was, he kept calling for me in the aid station, sending his privates to come get me so that he could come and like, fuck, like bring him back to his AO and like chew me out. And, um, it was, um, the first arm saw that happen. And like, I was, I was like, I fucking had a knife in my hand. I was like, I was like, fucking fuck. Cause it had been months of this, like, why are you, you're just fucking with me for, for whatever reason. And, and the first sergeant was like, you're not his NCO and fucking leave him the fucking alone. Doc squared away. Um, and so the, the first sergeant tuned him up and, and, it, and it was fine. But a lot of that kind of shit gets settled in, in platoon combatives, you know, where you get the opportunity to, to call out somebody and, you know, you do the big circle and like, all right, I'm fucking calling you out and we're going to, we're going to do the jujitsu thing here in the field in the middle of, uh, you know, the whole platoon and we'll settle this, um, I hope they still do that. Yeah. But, I, I think more of the world should do that. Yeah. Uh, honestly, I, I think uh, corporate America ought to fucking try that shit uh, at least a little bit. But uh, I think a lot of fucking problems would get solved. But so this was after your second deployment? Yeah. You? Yeah. It was like there It was like there was no need for it. There yeah. was no cause for it. So t- taking a few steps back, the second deployment, you go to Afghanistan again. What uh, What was that deployment like? So that was the very first day of that deployment was a Red Wings um, recovery for us. Oh, wow. And so that was it like June 28th was uh, the, the actual mission. And like we were still in Georgia um, and we were we were getting ready to rip out anyway and um, uh, to deploy. And um, uh, they pretty much put our platoon on a plane and, and got there. We landed in Bagram and we had about. We had probably about eight or 10 hours to pack up MREs and get ammo and everything. And then we were on helos and we're, we're up in the Conar on that search and rescue. And so we were up there for like three or four days walking around, um, uh, in the mountains. So it was like immediately like that deployment, it was different than the first one. Cause it was like, we are hitting the ground. We have a mission and we're going on it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, then we had a couple of other, um, longer, bigger, you know, long, uh, missions, not necessarily direct action stuff, um, on that deployment, medcap stuff is a really kind of, of, a, a diverse deployment, um, uh, hostage rescue stuff. Um, and, but it was, it was sporadic. There were, they were kind of, there were bigger things. Um, uh, but with a week, two weeks of downtime in between. Yeah. In terms of the Red Wing stuff, what, uh, can you walk us through what that was like? Like from kind of from start to finish, it was yeah. I mean, it was it was an interesting. I mean, it, it's still one of those things. Like I've written about it quite a bit, and um, you know, it, even in the moment, it, like while it was happening, you, you could understand the significance of it, how big of a thing that it was, and how many people. It wasn't just us. There was a lot of people out there who a lot of people were putting effort into um, finding those guys, and it felt even in the moment very historic it felt um big and heavy and we understood the weight of it and um and and what was at stake and when we went you know it was we didn't we didn't know who was alive and not we were assuming we were, we were operating under the assumption that these four guys were still alive and we were yeah. looking for them um it, it wasn't like a recovery thing in that sense so um, but we landed in the middle of the night and had a patrol base there and then took off from there and did it was the it was like the it was like the ranger school type mission where they're actually setting up patrol base we were setting up claymores and shit and it was like it felt like oh shit this is this finally this <clears throat> finally is the job that we've been training for 
for years for me anyway like this is the, this that was like the first real like holy this is a fucking army ranger mission you know that we're doing and um we have the right size element to conduct this and we're you know um but uh yeah it was it was those mountains are rugged and even for a group of people who are in you know highly athletic conditioning it was a challenge um, you know, I worked on, uh, you know, several of the guys throwing IVs in them and, and, and whatnot throughout the course of that, uh, few days, it was hot, uh, you know, it was, you know, the first week of July and the altitude was definitely a factor. We come from sea level, we come from Georgia and we're immediately, you know, what, what was the elevation where you guys were at? I want to say we were, we were moving around between like 9,000 and 11,000 feet. Yeah. Um, and it's hard walking, you know, it's, it's nasty. The, sh- the, the, you know, we, there was times when we were sliding down, uh, the, the rocks that were all crumbling and breaking loose. And I just remember thinking like, dude, to conduct like a firefight in this would be fuck as you're watching the locals who are, who are like billy goats up this shit. Like, and the kids who are walking, they, they know this environment. It's like, and it's like, how the, like they're it's like no problem with ease they're getting around and you know here we are these you know like it was humbling is all fuck um yeah and it's um yeah yeah it was i mean growing up in that environment and and not ever being anywhere else in day to day like you're carrying shit around like i mean i i suspect or or I, i know that at least part of that is why so many MMA fighters from the the Dagestan region are are so fucking capable that way is is because they grow up in a in a somewhat similar environment. Some of them, uh, but but yeah, I mean, it, like you bring those people down to sea level, and they're like, dude, this is a fucking joke, you know. But uh, it's interesting that um, that they were just kind of walking around and and that didn't have an impact in terms of like, they weren't like, Holy fuck, who are these guys? And and you guys weren't reacting to them or. Yeah. They don't, they don't walk in through our patrol bases, you know, like we're talking about like the, you know, the, the next ridge line over. And like, as we're, we're, you know, um, uh, on overwatch, we're essentially like glassing the areas where we're trying to, uh, just get movement. But yeah, the, you know, the, the terrorist, uh, the kind of terrorist villages and stuff, the kids were, you know, the people were, um, you know, there's people moving around, you know, you'd see people moving around for yeah. certain. We walked right through into one of the towns. And I remember there was a, there was a guy there, um, who's definitely very out of place. You know, he had the gold watch and a very clean white, you know, um, uh, clothes on. And it like, everybody else was like, the you know, yeah. snarly hair, locals, dust. dirt and everything else it was like, this guy doesn't belong. Uh, but I remember walking through this, this little village there and, and, you know, it, it was, um, it was like, fuck you know it was like it was like a high alert kind of a situation but it was like everybody here is being cool but you don't know who which one of these people were involved who were fucking pulling the trigger a few days ago and um yeah it it was it was vulnerable uh you know kind of a spot to be in but you know with with 30 plus guys it was like all right if it fucking kicks we you know it's gonna go but um i think our pl and uh, um sat down with the elder there and and was trying to get information and um but it was yeah, it was, I mean, it was all heads on a swivel, all, all eyes up for that whole time, that three or four days. For, for that period, did you have consistent, reliable comms with uh, whatever forward base you, you were stationed out of or whatever? I, I imagine so. I mean, I was not, I'm not the RTO. I didn't, um, uh, I uh, put an IV in the RTO, you know, because you're carrying <laughs> that big, heavy fucking radio around for yeah. a couple of days. But um, I, I honestly, I didn't even have a radio on me um, yeah. as the medic. You know, I was kind of, uh, 
occupied with other things and and um i, I don't know i can't i couldn't answer that question yeah. in, uh, accurately or intelligently there um did you guys ever c- come across anything did you find any of the guys did you yeah um well yeah, yeah so we had um on the second or third day that we were there um we had recovered matt axelson um and um i again i was kind of a uh um in a different part of the, the the overwatch um we had split up right a little bit and um the trolls were going on kind of squad based and um i don't know if it was necessarily our guys who found it but there was intel from one of the locals that said hey there's a body and um uh, yeah, and it was. I think some some team guys were pretty insistent on carrying him out, and it was a lot of respect there because we offer. We're like, you know, we got a lot of hands, and um, I think we had uh, we had a bag uh, that had been dropped by air supply, uh, one of the resupply drops, and uh, you know, kind of helped them out with that. But they were pretty insistent on like, we're, we got this, yeah, you know, Roger that. So, um, yeah. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Before Sarah discovered ChumbaCasino.com, she enjoyed chamomile tea. Come on, big jackpot. And being in PJs by six. Let's go. The new fun Sarah Woo-hoo! often thinks about the old boring Sarah. Yes. And wonders if that Sarah ever really existed. Chumba Casino has over a hundred casino style games. So join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Did you have any, um, I guess, intelligence or, or from a recovery standpoint, did, did you guys have any any hands on the recovery of, of him or or? I didn't personally. Um, Some of the guys in my platoon did. Yes. Yeah. The reason I ask, and I'm curious, uh, I know, you know, in in different accounts of of Red Wings, generally speaking, in the movie and everything that, you know, there's, uh, you know, some uh, details as it relates to, you know, things being taken off of the body and things like that. I was just curious if you had any, any, yeah, I, I, like I said, I was, I was probably a kilometer and a half away in the rear with the gear. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. yeah, Sort of thing. Uh, Yeah. yeah. I gotcha. Um, was there, I guess, what was the emotion like when you guys did, uh, come across and, and recover him? I mean, was there kind of an unspoken, gravity to, to it or what was that like i think up to that point we were all really hoping that everyone was still alive and so it was just like the thing shifted a little bit yeah. and then it's you know 
it got heavy for certain. I mean, it, it was serious before, um, but then it's like, okay, this is the, the, it's it's changed a little bit. And I do remember when we got back to Bagram when we landed is when we found out that one guy survived, that Marcus survived, mm-hmm. and it was like. Oh, thank God, you know, because, you know, as, as the time ticked on, it was, um, it was, it kind of was feeling very evident that nobody else, you know, nobody made it out and yeah. we were going to be recovering four bodies. And I remember being on the tarmac coming off of the, the bird and like getting that, getting that information and it being like, it, it felt like after, after a lot of knocks, you know, that, that was, that was a win that was like, okay yeah somebody came out and that felt good you know it really felt good it's like that effort the effort was obviously worth it all of that effort was worth it um you know uh, to just to bring back you know the remains of those americans but it it just it it didn't feel like a loss you know because he made it yeah did you recover anybody else and or did you go back out after that um no and no no that was our that was our clip we were up for about for about three and a half four days i think. Yeah. uh so after that you said it was a diverse deployment and there were sporadic periods of downtime what what uh what was the next big thing that you guys did after that um or, or kind of the highlights of the deployment I yeah guess. Th- so it, it was there was like three things that, that uh, kind of like act one two and three are the beginning middle end of that deployment red wings just opened it up and we kind of figured like this is going to be a you know if that's how we're starting it Epic and then movie. yeah and then it was a lot of time in the gym you know and um <clears throat> you know sneaking around to to the other hooches there and and you know stealing the chairs from the pj's tent you know and like uh going in you know the middle of the night and taking some of the pop tarts from you know where the where the seals were at, shit like that, you know, like trying, try, like big, big ticket stuff. Yeah, yeah, the, 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 the what is it, idle hands or the devil's play thing, and you know, you get guys in that environment who are, who are, um, they're itching to do something, you know, and like you got all you got is these other guys around you who are in other branches, and you kind of start doing those things that to occupy the time and and uh, and whatnot, and so there was there was a bit of that and, and a lot of training, and um, and because I think we were we were like, hey, give us something to do, give us something to do, we're here to do something. Um, we pulled like a civil affairs, uh, medcap mission, which was cool for a group of rangers. Cause it's not really what we typically do, um, where we kind of went and, and helped infill uh, a team to go and provide medical care to a small village. And I got to help out with some of that stuff. And so kind of see a different angle of, of, of things, a different, uh, kind of peek into a different, uh, type of, um, job, you know, and, um, it was like right on the border. It was like a little border village that was strategically necessary for, you know, relations and all that. Um, and then we had a, there was a, I think it was a British guy toward the end of the deployment who was um, taken hostage uh, uh, near Kandahar. And we went on that um, and, and it ended up being a body recovery. Uh, but um, before you jump into that on the, uh, on the second one, on the med cap thing, did, uh, did you guys get into any, any, ticks or gunfights no, no it was real pretty i mean like you could see that like when you come with that amount of force you know we had you know we had 40 probably 38 40 guys rangers that like yeah it, it, usually people aren't going to start a fight with that element you know like yeah. typically speaking it's just you know it's you know you're rolling into the bar with uh, you know with a dozen of your boys you know you're usually not going to be uh the target of you know any kind of uh violence yeah. uh it's it's um, yeah, it was, it was, it was really chill. It was, it was, it was just a cool, different experience. And it showed that, you know, the, 
it showed me like the versatility of special operations and the different things that are going on and yeah. and whatnot that it's not always all about gunplay to, yeah. to win a war you know there's other elements and other other um other facets to it yeah so then the last thing uh british guy had been taken hostage and they ended up killing him yeah they he uh he, um they, they took his head off oh shit yeah so what uh, was that publicized or was it like was it a big story at the time it, it was yeah it was it hit the news uh, cycles uh, for certain um yeah it was it was a rough one uh, i mean there's no place to sit on the on the bird and then you know on the way back it was like a it was like a four four and a half hour flight back and so i had to, I had to sit on his on his body bag and it just kind of felt like wow it, like it was like a like i literally felt like i was sitting on a, f- a really big failure yeah. you know and this you know this person was like that was what we were going there to do and do you remember what the circumstances with which uh, he was taken hostage um i don't i do remember that he was asthmatic and i, I remember that in the brief and um uh packing albuterol and, and stuff like that and uh, inhalers in my aid bag as a result of who the patient would be but would never obviously use them do you know if uh was he beheaded because you guys were coming or did, would it happen before that or do you know yeah i think there it wasn't so yeah there was um i think the um there was some uh, some there was a team that haloed in before us and um i think there was they, he was being held in like a small village and they they they, they saw the uh, they landed in the wrong spot kind of thing uh, and we had kind of the idea was that we were coming in to kind of provide a backstop and um, they came up into those mountains and um yeah so that was a that was a tough one you know to end a deployment on i mean it's a tough one no matter what you know um but uh yeah yeah it was it was like it was a money thing it was a ransom thing you know they were trying to get x amount of dollars for the person yeah do you remember where where about that was uh i just remember it was in the south i remember it was a real long fucking flight uh, from where we were at yeah um, all right, so you come back from that deployment. Uh, you sort it out with the fucking with your uh, one one of your what was it a platoon mate or a, it was a he was a squad leader squad leader. Yeah. So you you about sort it out with a squad leader, and then uh, you get ready to go. Now you're going to Iraq uh, for your third deployment. Yeah. Right? So and I, so on my first deployment, I was third platoon's medic, and then I was I got I got switched to. I essentially ended up being the new guy for each one of the three uh, line platoons. And so right before I, the Iraq deployment, um, I had just settled in. I'd been with second platoon for the whole training cycle. You know, I kind of finally got to know everybody after being the new guy for six months. And um, my senior medic was like, oh, you're going over to first. And it was like, you know, right before. I was like, oh, shit, man. Uh, sorry, that was right before the second deployment. And the person who um, was the new platoon sergeant was my cadre and rep and the dude who fucking, you know, like, you're like, oh, dude, like that guy is a, <laughs> like, he's like not a ball buster. He's the ball buster. Yeah. And like, I'm like, as the medic, like you're in his pocket, you know, yeah. like, I'm like, I got to live with this guy. I got to be, I was like, fuck. I was like, I would rather go to the, I would rather kick me out of Ranger Battalion than yeah. go and be this guy's yeah. medic. He was a fucking prick yeah. in, in rip. I mean, he was notorious for breaking people off, but he was very good at his job. And it was actually, it was on that medcap mission. Uh, where we were sitting and waiting for the sun to come up and we were kind of sitting back to back and before we went into that village and i, I remember asking him like hey do you remember um you know is there anything that you ever like really regret or like feel bad about with like you know the 
you know, what you did as a, as a cadre. And he started telling me about, there was one particular class where it was really cold. It was like, it started to sleet and snow and he was having everybody low crawl through, like break the ice with their face. And like, he's like, ah, those guys, like we really put it on them, like probably a little harder than we needed to. But I was like, yeah, that was my class. And he goes, oh, I don't want to talk anymore about this doctor fucking shutting this thing down. But the thing was, is like the guy was incredibly good at his job. Uh, uh, Sergeant Strait was, if his job was to, to weed out people who didn't really want to be there, that's what he did. And when his job was to be a platoon sergeant, he was a fantastic platoon sergeant. I mean, after the two deployments with him to uh, um, to, the, to Afghanistan and then uh, later to Iraq, I wouldn't have wanted to have been a medic for anybody else. The guy was fantastic. Yeah. So we spun up and um, I guess we were the main battalion effort um, on that deployment in 2006 to Iraq. And it was, it was going again pretty good. We were into crit. And um, we did something like 100 direct action raids in the three months that we were there. It was like really, it was really on a lot of that like other part of the ranger mission, the door kicking thing. And um, it was it was cool. So it was the diversity there. Each one of the deployments was a little bit different, provided a different uh, look. But um, that was, you know, we called it the summer of love. There was <laughs> there was a lot of violence and uh, beautiful, fast um, violence of action. Yeah. Um, and it was, uh, yeah, it was a really fucking unbelievable Time to be a ranger. Do you remember your first direct action mission where you were actually getting shot at, shooting back, and, and uh, you know, really getting it? Um, the f- There's one that sticks out in my mind um, that it's just there very vividly. It was Op Simpson. And the, the details of that, there was like this, um, we'd been watching. Um, there was two guys that we figured were in this place and um, uh, based on our video and... Um, they were strategic about coming in and out of the in and out of the uh, in and out of this little building, and and we hit it, and it was like it was immediate. Where we had one squad that was coming up, um, a second squad was coming up to the house, and there was a guy in a flatbed truck with a vest on, and he you know he sat up and he popped himself off, and um, you watched it. What's that? You saw it. You yeah, were- I was running toward the house. We, we had landed. Um, we had, I was with first squad and we were, we were coming toward the front door and, um, second squad, it just like, it, like, it, like, it looked like it erased them, you know? And I'm just waiting to hear like fucking the call for the medic on the radio. And it was like that, like perfect silence for that, that split second after the explosion was like, you're just waiting for it. And then the eruption happened where they had somebody, um, you know, uh, with a, uh, with a belt fed oriented on the door. So when first squad got to the door, they, they opened up on that, you know, one of the new guys took around to the helmet sort of thing. And it was like fucking on, it was, it was, it was full on, you know, grenade fight. And there was 10 guys inside the house. Uh, they had only, they had strategically only had two guys going out at any given time ever because they knew they were, you know, uh, being watched. Uh, with the eye in the sky there and like um it was it was fucking it was on um yeah um what uh what was the length of time that 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 entire fucking firefight took so that's the thing about like flow state right um is that time kind of becomes distorted so like i can like the the things that were happening there to me really kind of felt slow motiony um and it could have been so there were squirters a couple of them uh, you know uh, took off and so the actual like the meat of the firefight, um, maybe five to ten minutes. Yeah, you know it was like the violence of action was pretty precise, and you know once the grenades started getting thrown, um, you know it was 
uh, it was done. And like we outnumbered them, you know, three to one and um, we're you're better at, at, at that than they were apparently, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, but um, what, yeah. how, did, how did it lead up to that? I mean, like what, what was the objective originally? You said it was Operation Simpson? Is that what you said? Yeah, I think I'm pretty sure that was the name of it. And it was just, you know, it was, there was, we had intel on on foreign fighters there um, uh, who were, that was the thing at the time is there was a lot of um, people who were coming over from other countries and we're in Iraqis that were fighting. Those people were, yeah. um, you know, they were, they were coming in and they were getting paid to fight us. Um, and I remember like, so, um, one of the people that squirted out the back, um, you know, I shot and, um, he was kind of, um, but he was taking fire from, I think three different positions as he was running and he had six holes in him. Uh, when I got up to him, still alive. And I looked at him, I was like, this is a fucking kid. He's probably 14 years old, best at best with the interpreter coming out, come up and, and, uh, I remember asking him, um, or, you know, through the interpreter, like, you know, what, what would your, you know, what would your parents say that you're here? And he said that, well, they'd be proud of me. Um, and it was just like, what the fuck? And I remember it's probably not, this is something I wrestled with for quite a bit since then, because, you know, I understand like I'm, I'm the medic and my job is to be the medic no matter what. And it was just like, you know, watching, luckily none of the guys in second squad died. They, they all survived. It's some burns and stuff like that. But watching that happen and all the, everything else in the five minutes leading up to that, I, and it was, a, you know, like, wasn't the best thing to do, but I looked at the kid and I was like, I turned around and walked off, you know, I was like, all right, you fucking chose your path. That's it. And, and, uh, we had a PA with us and he worked on him and the kid, the kid survived, you know, but it was just like that, like that real apathy, like, uh, all right, this is war and you're, you're the fucking bad guy. And like, it was my job to work on him and I just didn't, yeah. you know, um, I mean, is it though? Like, is that, that's part of your guys' responsibility is to work on, uh, I worked on plenty of, of people who we shot. Yeah. Yeah. Plenty, plenty, uh, every other one, but him. Um, and it was just that moment of like, I just, huh. Did, did, well, so with any of the other people that, that were, you know, enemy fighters that you ended up working on, did you ever ask them? similar things or why they're here or where they're from or anything or I, st I i i was i got detached and it was just like i looked at it like a like a like a k-prime lab it was this is a this is a skills lab and um if i can um if i can learn something or or tune up my skills on this human body who's pumping blood out um that I, like i don't really care about uh if i can take something from that experience and and give it to one of my guys tomorrow night then I need to, I need to sit, I need to do the job. You know, um, I had one, one guy that, um, uh, he got hit with, there was a little bird. Um, he got hit with some of those rounds and it splayed his testicle, uh, open, his, his scrotum was open and he had the hole through his, his leg. And I took some shit for this, but his, 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 uh, his left testicle had uncoiled and, um, I just, it's just like, fuck you, man. Like you're, you know, they were, they were, uh, vest makers. Were, um, and, I packed his wound with his own testicle and he's yelling the whole time asking for morphine and stuff. And I'm like, I've got two, I've got two hits of it and it's, you're not getting either one of them because your boys are still out in the, in the, in the wood line out there, you know, and, and getting in with, with our guys. And, you know, I like to think of myself as, as, you know, I've worked on my empathy, you know, like since, you know, like I've, I've, you know, I've really kind of, you know, done the, the, the meditation thing enough and, and to like, to look at these things in hindsight and to realize though, that in that environment, um, you really, after a while of it, night after night, every single night going out and like, um, your, your brother's about dying and, and it's them and us, it's them and us. And it, it, 
kind of it does something you know uh for good bad or otherwise in that environment it's fuck them you know uh even if you want to maintain compassion and empathy and stuff like that and know that this person directly is not a, really a threat anymore it's 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 an interesting thing because in that environment after that those experiences it's like fuck you dude i'll give pain is your problem it's not my fucking problem yeah uh you 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 made your bed and now you're gonna fucking lay in it yeah so what uh what was the the kind of overall mission set on that one uh where where the the one that you're just talking about in terms of the guy's nuts getting um and if you could further elaborate i'm curious uh, just so that i understand it right you said you you packed like he had other gunshot wounds. That you- yeah, so so the the cavitation was in the upper left thigh, right? So it, it, you kind of have a gaping hole there, and uh, but it, it had ripped open his scrotum, and the the, the testicle had uncoiled, right? And so uh, it was there, I'm packing it in with a uh, packing the thigh wound with uh, you know uh, with the gauze, and um, I just kind of coiled the nut up and. and <laughs> Uh, along with the gauze and and uh, and put it stuffed it in the hole and i thought it was like still medically sound you know it's like uh what else are you gonna do with it? i'm not gonna clip it off you got to do something with it um and to preserve it maybe i don't know um, so it was still connected yeah it so like the the testicles like it's like a, it's like coiled i've, I've up, never yeah. unwound a testicle yeah before. yeah it was Forgive a really interesting ignorance. thing it's like um um <laughs> Oh man, uh, you know like the um, those like the kitchen machines that like you press it through and it like oh, kind yeah. of swirlies the vegetable, you know, yeah. where it's kind of coiled up, almost like a pigtail sort of thing, and like yeah. you stretch it out and then it's like a curly. It's fry. like that with the, the testicle on coil like that. Um, it's kind of wound up. Uh, so yeah, it was. I think I took some shit for that later from the CEO. Like you can't yeah. be doing that shit, yeah. you know. Like um, so, I mean, clearly, like whoever worked on him after that was like what the fuck maybe i don't know i didn't i didn't, I didn't <laughs> or get, maybe they were laughing i, don't I didn't know. get too hard of a maybe phone they, call but i, I don't know i don't know what the proper like we, that's something we didn't learn yeah. uh, you know in the medical course uh we didn't you know so i was like i yeah, did with uh, what i could but um we were there was a lot of the places and a lot of these things blurred together because it was like even after that op simpson we got called for a follow-on objective after that so the same like later that night like so we went back um uh to i think it was like blood and like got more ammo and you know it was like washing you know, like washing the blood off of us and we had another follow-up mission we were nights we were doing two or three different hits and um so they all they, they really blurred together um a lot of them were um uh, um vest makers right where we were going and hitting and we would find the vests and the materials for making them and all of that when we hit the house and um there was it was a it was a pretty regular ordeal where you know You'd have the, a couple people squirt, a couple people would hold their position. Um, they'd get dead, and half of the time the squirters would get dead, and half the time they'd get reeled back in. Yeah. Um, but it was just it was just that over and on repeat. Uh, um, so that, that was the bulk of, of the deployment was DAs on IED and vest maker type type of operations in Tikrit. Yeah, yeah, yeah the Samara Tikrit area. Yeah, yeah. It was the yeah that was our kind of our AO in yeah. 06. and. Uh, was that first op that you talked about, Operation Simpson? Was that uh, the most busy or craziest gunfight that, that you remember from that? Uh, or were there any that were, that were as bad or, or more so? There was, there was a, a uh, yeah, that, that was probably the most complete version in my head of what a, you know, a, a gunfight would look like. Cause you had, it's kicked off with, uh, with a vest, right. Uh, that started it. 
um, you know, you had the, um, you have a belt fed, you know, coming through the door. You've got, um, you've got the elements of small arms fire, uh, the grenades, the, it was, it was a complete enough thing where there was, you know, like, it's like, that's okay. You know, when you think about like the, uh, you know, in a movie or something like that growing up, like this is, that's the, the kind of complete package of they're shooting at us. We're shooting at them, yeah. grenades, grenades, bombs, the, the, the whole kind of the whole thing. Yeah. Um, other ones, you know, there was, there was, we just kind of overpowered people with the, our numbers and our violence. So it, it didn't, it, when things kicked up, it didn't, it didn't last very long. Yeah. You know, you have three dozen Rangers coming in. It's like, this is, this is going to be over quick. Yeah. Um, and that was like the most fight that we had really put back against us was 10 guys. Um, cause usually, you know, it was two, three, four guys where you go in and, you know, at times when, um, I remember going to rooms with two man. And a uh, guy's was in the corner and, and his, um, his AK 47 had jammed and it was fucking right. Like, but we saw it later that the, that the round, I don't know if we fucking loaded it backwards or whatever, but it was, uh, it was jammed and he went to, he, he went to pull a grenade and, um, my, my, uh, my buddy more hit, he, he tapped him twice. Um, and like he went down with a grenade in his hand and then there was, there's uh, a secondary gunfight going on in the kitchen that was in a bedroom, but it's like, here's three or four people who are putting up opposition against 36 fucking dudes. Yeah. Who at that time are really tuned up and they're doing this every fucking night. So it was, it was usually over pretty quick. Whenever there was people who were going to put up any kind of opposition, it was fucking over quick. Yeah. With 36 dudes doing DAs and shit like that. Did you ever have instances of blue on blue where rounds are going through walls and almost hitting each other? No. You were, you were pretty solid on the deconflict that way. Yeah. Well, you, you have half of those guys are set up, you know, to catch squirters. So it's, you usually have two, two of the squads. Yeah. So it's not like 30 dudes hitting a house. It's more like half of that number yeah. actually hitting. And the other ones are working on containment and you rotate nightly. If you could, you mentioned uh, like a movie, is there a, a operation that you remember vividly enough to set up and, and almost walk through? Like it's a fucking screenplay um, that, that you could kind of describe that, that really exemplifies the type of mission that you were doing on that. The, the one thing I know that, uh, all you fuckers listening out there love uh, they love the details on uh, on actions on like that. So if there's if there's one that you could pick that you set it up that way, that would be fantastic. Also, is there a, if there is any fucking canine stories from uh, from that deployment? So that yeah that so the uh, the night with the guy with the testicle um, that night. Uh, we, we were using a dog, and the dog's name was Wudan. The dog was fucking incredible. The dog was the most violent one out of all of us. We love, <laughs> go figure. We love that dog, man. Um, and Wudan, I, uh, yeah, Wudan. That's um, it was um, uh, a Belgian Malinois, and I definitely it was some of the some <clears throat> of the most interesting wounds that I've seen were from those dog bites. The way yeah. the tendons stretch and get pulled out, but. Um, uh, huh. Yeah, it was. I'm like, I'm like, it's that line of like, okay, what? Um, there is no line here yeah. on mic drop. You cross. There's, there's. No yeah, such thing. yeah. You, you can um, fucking trampoline over that fucking line. Yeah. So like, again, I, I, I like, war becomes you, you know, when you're engaged in it, and um, you're, you're, you're there, there to do a job, and that job is violence, you know, and there's, it's very difficult and not even necessary to to do violence softly yeah. if you do it right it's it's hard and it's 
fucking mean, you know? Mm-hmm. And so that night there was, I want to say around a half a dozen people who squirted out of that, that, um, that building where, um, they were making vests and, um, the, there was two guys that were in a, in a, I want to say, uh, was a fig orchard. One of whom got hit by the little bird. Um, the other one we found and, and, you know, roughed up and then brought back into the house. I worked on the guy's testicle and then they were still looking for four other people. And, um, I went with one of those teams and we were walking through, um, these orchards and everything. And we we had some visibility from above, but, um, you know, it was incomplete and, um, we found another one of the guys and let the, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't coming out of his hole. So we let the dog on him and, um, Wudan did his job, earned his, you know, <laughs> earned his, earned his, earned his biscuits that night. Um, and, and pulled the guy out from his bicep and detached the bicep. Um, uh, pretty good for some good holes there. Was the guy screaming when he, Oh, it was like, like, I'll never forget that, that blood, like blood curdling, like yeah. absolutely like terrifying, um, yeah, like he knew he was Fuck. fucking, I'm done. I'm t- like, if he could have used his arm, he would have tapped out. But I mean, yeah. that dog was on him. And it was it was kind of that, like, as we were walking around for probably two hours in the muck and, and, the, and, the, and the cold and everything, looking for this guy. And it was just like, fuck you for making us look for you. You know, and so I, I remember um, uh, putting my thumb in his armhole as kind of a joystick to walk him back, you know, so that he wouldn't <laughs> run off again. I'm like, I don't want to be chasing you through fucking dawn. Um, and, and got him back. And yeah. What were the circumstances in, in terms of when you, I mean, did you kind of pseudo locate him and that's when you sent the dog in, was the dog giving an indication? Yeah, We were getting, we were getting Intel from, uh, from up top, uh, right. That he was in a certain spot. That, that, yeah. That they, they had him to this area <clears throat> and, um, you know, and then, yeah, we let the dog, off on them and um fantastic result and it was probably i think we had we had those situations happen there's probably around a dozen times there was probably a dozen different missions where the dog really did the did the did the work for us and that was the the same dog each time yeah no shit yeah i I, i'm pretty sure on that deployment we pretty much there might have been another dog that they rotated but it always seemed to be wudan who really got the he, he got the, the glory. Potatoes. He took a he took a, a a bit of a growl at the sergeant major that nobody liked, and it was it was interesting because it's like he became such a part of our platoon yeah. that like it was like he knew that like when the when like the guys didn't like somebody that that he didn't like them, you yeah. know. Um, awesome, awesome yeah. part of the team. So uh, we're not going to have time to get all twelve. All twelve, but is there another one or two dog stories that you could share since uh, it's such a dog heavy industry that I'm in? Yeah, I mean, a lot of them went like that, right? And they kind of, again, they blur together um, where, you know, you've got a squirter who is just being a, being a fucker about it. You know, he doesn't want to get caught. Obviously, this is a pretty dangerous game of hide and seek that you're playing. Yeah. You know that you fucked up. You know that you've been like, these are not people who we suspect are are, are assholes. Like they're like, you know. They're, they're certified. They're certified. Asshole. There's a dossier and there's like, you know, we've already gone through their house and found all their, you know, their shit. And, um, you know, they know that if they get, they, so they're hiding pretty well in the, yeah, it's, um, I, I, I remember more cause this is, it's been a while. It was 2006 years of 14 years. I, the thing that sticks out most to me about it is one, how effective and, and, uh, the dog is how fast and, and the, what they they're capable of Two is the injuries. Yeah. And, um, I remember, uh, one night that, um, 
uh, it was out in an open field and the distance was just so far um, that we were able, you know, we let the dog go. And so like we were fucking hauling ass as fast as we could, but obviously you're not going to keep up that, that um, the dog took down uh, the squirter. And by the time we caught up to him and you just hear him scream the whole way, it's probably, he's probably <laughs> two, 300 meters out ahead of us. Yeah. And you could still just, you just hear him and um, getting there. And I remember his, his tendons, uh, and ligaments being like stretched and pulled out of the skin and just being like, and stopping for a moment. Cause yeah. like at that point, like I'd seen some decent trauma. It was like, yeah. Oh fuck. You know, like that's, that's a new one, you know? Um, but yeah, that's the thing. I mean, you know, having, you know, worked in the dog industry professionally for, uh, you know, well over a decade. Um, that's the one thing I think that, that surprises a lot of people when you, when you see a legitimately trained, genetically fucking capable dog you know do his job in the way that they're supposed to it, it's it surprises most people how how fucking capable they are at, at fucking people up you know and 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 how fast and i think that's really the the the, the tricky part i mean a lot of times i mean if i had a nickel for every fucking time somebody's like well i'll just i'll make a fist and i'll fucking jam it down his throat and i'll gag him you know and it's like here's what you don't realize is that you know that dog's mouth is their only weapon right I mean, in conjunction with their mind, but their their offensive weapon is their mouth. And so you got, you know, a, a two fucking rows of, of serrated spikes and triangles, you know, that, that, you know, when that dog decides to bite down, he's got hundreds of pounds of pressure behind it. Uh, and that's going into flesh. And, and, you know, it's akin to it's, it's like saying, I'm going to I'm going to grab a fucking drill bit. And, right, and, right, st- right. and stop yeah, it. Yeah, like, yeah. no, it's, it's going to r- rip your fucking hand off, you know, and uh yeah, I mean, I've got fucking dozens of pictures in my phone of dogs I've you know sold to departments or whatever, where uh, you know, or, or buddies on different departments that uh, send these you know bite photos of you know some asshole that got pulled out from a fucking wheel well of a, of a dump truck or whatever that was a, a convicted fucking sex offender or something, and just like all of these uh, stories and, and photos and examples of these dogs doing what they're trained to do is just, uh, God, I mean, it gives me, gives me the fucking heart on, <laughs> you know, every time it happens. Cause you know, because it's like that, that's the pinnacle of, of why I do what I do is, uh, you know, is providing dogs and, and training to people that, uh, you know, where the dog is used and makes a difference. But were there any other, um, if you could talk about the injuries to that guy and then, and then one other bite that's, that stands out, uh, from an, uh, an injury standpoint, kind of how, how spectacular it was yeah so we we had brought that guy back into um to the, to the original house that, that we hit and um i was told you know, hey package this guy up make it clean i was like okay you know and you understand like okay with you know multi-systems trauma that's going on here i've got a couple of things and this is what you know if i'm going to treat this patient right i need about maybe 15 20 minutes was he know? shot too or just bit um was he shot i don't think he was shot yeah. i don't think he was shot he but he had he had <clears throat> The dog um, fucked he him had up. Plenty of good dog. I mean, he had it on the. I think it was. It's definitely his forearm and around his ankle, and um, it was enough bleeding uh, in order to justify, obviously, you know, IVs and, and everything. I had to go through a, a couple of things there, and there's a couple of things to package up. So I'm like, ah, need some time. And these are also wounds that, like, this is a wounds a wound to a degree, but like, it was kind of fascinating to me. I kind of wanted to poke <laughs> poke at it, you know, from an from an anatomy standpoint. Yeah. Like, if I pull on this thing, will this finger move? You know, <laughs> and uh, um, yeah. So, I, like, um, packaging that patient was was one thing. And I remember like them telling me like, okay, package the patient, and then something changed where we had an add on mission. They're like, you have a minute and a half 
you know, helos are inbound and you guys are going to exfil. I was like, well, which is it? Do you want me to package this guy or, do, you know, are we leaving him? They go, well, package him in a minute and a half. And it was kind of like, you know, this is the, this major, this, you know, saying this from the fucking, from the, from the jock. And I'm Bust like, Bust out the rigors tape. I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> you want me to do? But he's the same guy who got on me about, you know, like, yeah. um, being, a, you know, a, a little bit callous with previous patients. I was like, do you want me to treat the guy well? You know, or do you want me to grab him by his tendons and throw him in the back of the, you know, the helicopter? So we found a middle ground there, you know, I threw, threw some band-aids on him and, and went. Um, Are you like suturing guys in that environment or just no, packing it and fucking? No, 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 absolutely not. No. Um, yeah, just um, at the protocol of time, you know, for, for those types of injuries, you know, you could, I don't think I, I don't, I think I might've actually put a tourniquet on him, on his arm. Um, it was that bad. It wasn't that bad, but it was kind of like, I'm going to slow the bleeding and just to, yeah. to make it not be so messy. And plus it's like, I got an opportunity to fucking practice the whole getting, you know, the whole thing with this yeah. guy and practice. I'm going to go through my, go through my lane. So it was like, um, you know, one, two, three, four and, um, and, um, you know, the bandages, but I don't think, you know, he ended up, I didn't end up not having time to do the, to do a line on him or anything like that. And it was, it was, it was quick and go. So. Yeah. Um, uh, I didn't get a full patient history yeah. on him, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. Was, um, you didn't check his prostate? I tried. Yeah. They wouldn't, yeah. I tried to tongue his dumper and they wouldn't <laughs> let me. Uh, in terms of any, any follow on uh, dog bite stories, if you could share uh, maybe one more just because I, I, I fucking love it. I went for the, the, like the, the glory of the handler. We had, we had um, uh, it was a, another vest. Uh, there's a lot of vests going on at that yeah. time. It was just really was the most prominent. Uh, yes. Threat at that yeah. Time? And like, and so you get to the point where like you get skittish cause you've seen so many of them and it's like, you know, you're, you're thinking everybody has yeah. a vest on and, um, the handler, I remember we were, um, we were coming up on the house and we had already been engaging with people on the rooftop and there was somebody outside of the house as we were advancing. And, um, the, it was kind of like, we'll put the dog on him. And the handler was like, wasn't sure if the guy had a vest and he didn't, he didn't want to let the dog go on somebody who didn't know if he had a vest or not. Sure. Um, and so the handler, uh, actually just plugged this guy, uh, <laughs> like, sure. yeah, the pistol. And, and I, I remember it like it was in a nine mil and he emptied the whole clip on the guy No shit. and then we left him there. Um, uh, because it was just like, we, we have to go and hit the, the, the actual target house. And so he was there hours later and, um, we just assumed, man, they got a whole clip unloaded in them and, you know, we weren't going to, we, again, I wasn't going to rush in and try to, you know, help him, uh, until after we, we knew, but like we came back a couple hours later, the guy was still. I was still breathing. I was like, no shit. holy shit, man. I'm going I'm to take a, a quick moment to bust your chops. You're probably the first combat veteran that's called it a clip, by the way. Oh, sorry, Mag. Yeah. It's <laughs> been a long yeah. time, man. Yeah, yeah. I should, I'll, I'll, yeah. You're going to catch some shit from the boys. I'm that's sure. all right. You might as well start with me. I'm just fucking with you, but I appreciate uh, it. You got to uh, hold, you got to hold, you got to hold your friends and your, your <laughs> to a standard, yeah, you know? That's right. Uh, so he dumps the whole fucking mag in this guy. And I mean, was he a bad shot or was a lucky fucking dude? And was he wearing a vest? Yeah, just sometimes, um, uh, you know, we, we, we detonated in place. Um, I think it, we ended up putting some, some other charges that we found in the house near him and just yeah. blowing them, um, there. So we, if, if he had one on, we didn't know it. Yeah. I mean, I, I would assume depend, I guess it depends on the vest, but you, you may find that out when you fucking dump a mag into him. Yeah. Depending on how it's fashioned. Yeah. But, um, so, so the handler dumps a mag in him. Were, were there any other instances where that handler uh, used that dog and you had to patch, uh, patch a guy up? 
Those are the prominent ones that I remember. I mean, again, like it happened, but those were the, definitely the more severe ones where it was it was clear that that the dog was the was the difference. Yeah, you know um, that it. I'm not saying we wouldn't have caught those people, but um, we might not have, yeah. and it definitely would have taken a whole lot more risk. Yeah, uh, for for our lives uh, in the process, and those were those were in that in that deployment. Those were the like two standout ones where um, the dog definitely made the difference. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, as that deployment progressed, did the, did there get uh, to a point where uh, you guys kind of got you know almost uh, burnt out, like op tempo wise? I mean, or, or how how did that? Yeah, I mean, it was short deployments. You know, the ninety day, ninety day deployment. Yeah. So if we would have had it, if we had to go a couple more months, burnout would have. I think that would have. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was. It was the right amount of time, and be able to come back and take take a couple weeks off. Yeah. Uh, I missed the last couple weeks of that deployment, though. I was. Um, um, I I got a hernia. Essentially, tore uh, open on uh, running up. A bull. We got we got set down on a mission, um, kind of in like a little bit of a valley, and we had, the target house was up. And I just, I was having to run up this hill and, and I just felt that shit go, you know, felt a tear and, and continued on through the rest of the mission. But then after that, putting on the armor and everything, it was, it was a pretty good, it was an inguinal hernia and, um, you know, it, just shouldering any weight. We had two other medics for the platoon. And so, um, you know, the last two weeks of that deployment, I was, I was sent home early to get surgery. Did um, you make a full recovery? Does it still fuck with you at all anymore? Um, I, the, the surgery was good. And then up. It was about two years ago. the The mesh failed, and then I had to have another one put in on top of it. Oh shit! Yeah. Uh, what was your first impression of Nick Irving when he showed up? Uh, very moto. I mean, like he was like, uh, um, young. I mean, he was like real young. I don't know. He's like barely eighteen years old. Yeah. But he was like this supercharged, motivated. Like it was like it was almost to his detriment. You know, like <laughs> like it's like. He, Calm down a little bit, man. You know, but like he just, you know, he he he. It was the fucking ranger thing, you know. And he yeah. was like, he wasn't shy about it. He wasn't passive about it. It was a little ball of muscle, even at the time. And you know, he just he wanted to fucking go and do it, you know. And uh, he was a very quick learner. Um, you know, that first deployment of that was his first deployment. Yeah. Um, and it was he definitely. You know, he got his he got his feet wet real fast yeah. uh, there, and then went on to, to the sniper section and stuff. But um, were, were there any? Oh, go ahead. No, no, he, just, he was he was a great ranger. You yeah. know, across the board. What uh, were there any missions that you remember being on with him that stand out? Um, I remember. So after Op Simpson, when we had to go back to Balad, um, we were sitting in this hangar and refitting our ammo, and I remember. Um, the follow-on mission uh, was it was going to be at a chemical warehouse, and so they gave me a box of atropine injectors that I was then going to have to tell these guys who six of them just got you know blown up. They're, they survived, but like, hey, we might get our faces melted off on this thing. And I remember Nick standing there and like really, I remember his face in that moment in that hangar between what was a pretty quintessential like combat moment and what could be another one. And we're sitting in this calm in between and like, and, and getting new batteries and everything. And here's a case, you know, 18 might've been 19 years old. And he just seemed like his face, he was like kind of prepared for it. You know, he was, um, 
it, there wasn't, there was not the, that there was like a look in everybody's eyes, like, oh shit, oh shit. It was like, this is what we have to do. But I do remember that moment where like, I'm handing out atropine injectors and like being like, okay, you guys remember from basic training, like if your face starts to fucking melt, stab yourself <laughs> in the leg. And he was just like, it, the, the look on his face was like, this is where I belong. Yeah. You know? Wow. He's a consummate fucking warrior, no doubt about it. Um, you know, he's been on this show a, a few times and uh, I always love having him on. But um, all right. So as that deployment kind of kind of wraps up, you said it was 100 or so direct action. Yeah, it, it was it was on average. There was one a night. There was like I remember one or two nights where we're browned out. Uh, where we didn't go, and then there was plenty of other nights where we were two, and I think once or twice we had three. Yeah. Uh, Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Do you know ballpark what uh, what the body count was uh, versus? We had a t- uh, we had we were actually keeping tallies on the whiteboard until that same major. Uh, he said it was unprofessional, but we were at uh, we were at thirty eight when he um, made us erase the ticks, and I don't know that was probably three quarters of the way through yeah. the deployment. Yeah. Uh, did you guys lose anybody? Uh, we didn't. Yeah. No, funny. and it was like one of those things where, like, you're looking back on it with how close, how close, how close um, some of these things had happened. <clears throat> I just, I, I still to this day, I'm like, so thankful, you know, that like all of, all of our guys came back from that with, you know, yeah. uh, yeah. Did did anybody get wounded that you had to work on over your own guys? Um, not severely, you know, it was like, it was, it was, it was real wild, man. Like, like real close calls. Like I was saying, like, uh, you know, a guy, you know, took the round in the helmet, uh, you know, it's seven, six, two hit your fucking head. It's usually not a good thing, but yeah. you literally, it's, it's like, it was like a lot of those types of things were like, like bullet holes through pant legs and shit, wow. you know, where like, it's just, it like clipped the calf a little bit. And, um, the, 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 um, um, uh, the suicide vest detonating, you know, the six guys right there, they got blown back, but yeah. there was like some minor burns and scrapes and things like that. It was, you know. It, yeah, it was, it was really, I was, I was waiting the whole time to hear medics screamed out and yeah. it just didn't happen. Wow. You know? That's awesome. I mean, I think it's a testament to the selection process, getting the caliber of guys that, uh, you know, that Ranger battalions produce as well as the training and, uh, fuck, there could be a little bit of luck in there. Who knows? Um, 
I am curious in terms of uh, as that uh, deployment wound down, um, what where was your head at in terms of kind of had you had enough? Is that was there a tipping point where you decided, okay, I'm I've done what I wanted to do, and now it's time to to get the fuck out? Um, I was actually um, hoping to go to um, to CAG selection. No shit. That uh, that fall, and um, I had that set up and the hernia. When I had had the surgery, I had been training for it that whole deployment. Um, when I got that hernia, I had had the surgery was like a month before my selection day. I'm like, well, that's not going to happen. And then my um, my my enlistment was up uh, shortly after that. But for me, the timing of it would have been perfect. Like I get selected, good, I go over there. If I don't, then I'm out of the army. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so that was like the one thing where, um, you know, the. Not to say like it was left unsettled, but it's like that, like I, I wanted to go and see what that was about. And um, and I would have obviously stayed in had that been the, you know, been the, been the action. Um, but at that time, after that injury and, and those deployments and um, it just it felt like it was time to move on. Yeah. And my moving on again was like to go to selection. But then that didn't happen, so it's like I'm moving on this other way, yeah. and, and 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 going and making all the mistakes that people make when they transition out of the military uh, was the was yeah. the next step. But we'll uh, we'll certainly get into those here in a second. I, I am curious for taking one step back on that uh, last deployment. Were there, uh, to your knowledge, any of the raids that you went on, foreign fighters that you guys legitimately identified as being from somewhere else? Yeah, and where were they from? Do you yeah, know? The, uh, Saudi Arabia was was a big one. Um, I remember consistently. Um, and they, they would always have, you know, not always, but plenty of times, just stacks and stacks of, of, uh, us dollars. We had one operation. It just, it just kind of like occurred to me where, um, a good friend of mine, there's a couple bronze stars given on that one mission, uh, um, where there was a couple of guys, um, as sentries out in a, in an orchard outside of this town. Uh, and we knew that and, uh, a friend of mine went in, you know, silenced and, and, um, and uh, eliminated them. I was right behind him when that happened. And then we went in and hit the town. In the town, there was a couple of houses um, where people were in. And, and um, we eliminated one target um, as he was getting out of bed and reaching for a weapon. Um, but in, the, I, and I'll never forget immediately afterwards, the sound that came out of the other room was a child crying. And a kid was asleep in the crib. Um, and it was like, fuck. Um, but there was, uh, it was like 40,000 us dollars in brand new hundred dollar bills underneath the mattress of the baby's crib. And that was a theme that we encountered a lot was like large amounts of like us dollars in, in, in hundreds, you know, crisp brand new, um, that an op Simpson, I think we recovered, you know, a few thousand dollars on different people. Like they were getting paid that to, did, did you take it? Um, so that was the thing is like, the, it was a, <laughs> no comment. The, uh, so there was a private who found that, um, that stash of cash in the crib yeah. and it went over the radio, you know, he's like, Hey, you know, I found, you know, there's, there's us dollars in this thing. And, um, Oh wait, no, I didn't. Yeah. And, and like, there's like all the guys are like, what the fuck did he say? You know, like, Shut the fuck, we can't take that back now. You can't put that back in the box now, yeah. man. Uh, it's so paste out of the tube right yeah, there. But the, the major who was, you know, hanging out in the, in the jock was like, he was really pleased, you know, cause yeah. like, you know, now here's something you can set out and you know, it was a win for him, yeah. uh, for certain. But like the guys were like, Oh, we could have thrown a hell of a fucking party. We got back in that, but yeah, like, uh, you know, I think I'd like to say for for the most part, when it came to the, to the times when it's important to be honest, we were honest. Yeah. And uh, did you I, get, 
Yeah. Yeah. Did you guys ever find out where where it was being funneled from, or was that about? No, your, that, that's that was yeah. There was there was people who were working on that who yeah. were with us that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm curious. I'd love to have somebody like that on the show at some point and get into kind of the weeds of the, uh, you know, the same way they do like counter narcotic stuff is, yeah. you know, the dismantling of the supply of, of, uh, those networks. But, uh, anyway, all right. So back to, uh, so the, the timeline doesn't work out, uh, hernia surgery wise. So now you decide to get out and you, and you did a little contracting. Yeah. Not immediately. What did um, you do, right? Like what was the first, first, uh, couple of weeks of being out, uh, like, like Dad and I took a Harleys to Mexico. No shit. First thing, yeah. What kind of Harley do you have? Um, I had a 2006 Street Bob. Mm. Um, it's a, a long fucking trip on a bike like that. Well, from Phoenix. Oh, so, okay. like, I got out. I got out and uh, <clears throat> and drove 31 straight hours from Columbus, Georgia, to Phoenix, and um, um, had my you know the bike in the trailer kind of thing. Unloaded it and kind of. Um, I think like the next day, my dad and I took off and, and went down to to Puerto Penesco, to Rocky Point. It's like a three-hour motorcycle drive oh, from Phoenix. Cool. Yeah, uh, We hung out there with a bunch of his fireman buddies. And um, yeah, it was, it was a cool, it was a, it was a, it was a cool like first week or two. But then it was like, I didn't have a plan yeah. after that. I knew I wanted to go to college. Um, this but, was like 07? Yeah, this was like late 06, early 07. Okay. And um, I just, I was like, what do I do now? You know, and so I started throwing applications out in different places. I need to get a job. And, um, did you consider going back to being a firefighter? Yeah, that was the, that was the plan. That was absolutely, but like, it takes time to, you know, um, even, even having done that, I was still have to go and test. And so the department that I worked on before was a smaller department and I had aspirations of going and working for the larger city. I wanted to work for my dad's department, Peoria. And, um, I was throwing out applications for just kind of day jobs to, you know, make money to buy beer with while I was you know, getting everything together. And I remember I submitted, it was 160 different applications and resumes to different places, bars and shit like that. And no callbacks at all. Nobody. No yeah. And it was just, I don't know, maybe it was intense or something. Uh, um, and I, I finally, my <clears throat> first job after being an army ranger medic was, um, I got a job, uh, working at a salon that my little sister was cutting hair at as a receptionist. <laughs> no fucking way. Yeah. Yeah. I got paid $10 an hour under the table. Is that why your hair is long now? It's, yeah. It's like, uh, she just, she just gave me a good dye job. I got yeah. the, the highlights done, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was kind of surreal, but there was other benefits to that because I was the only guy around, yeah. you know? And it's like, so I went trip. directly from an environment where there was no women <laughs> to all women and, uh, uh it, it worked out well. Um, that's surprising that's, actually. That's, yeah. Like, um, so, you know, I think I got a job as a bouncer at a place eventually. And then, you know, so you didn't get in trouble as the uh, salon fucking, I, you know, I mean, no, no trouble, no trouble. No, <laughs> just, didn't get caught anyway. Yeah, it was all good. Yeah. It was really good. That's a fucking trip. Um, was, was there a, a transition struggle for you at all in terms of taking a job like that? And, and then the bouncer and whatever, I mean, was there an element of, of not, not finding purpose in what you were doing? Yeah, absolutely. I, the, there was that like I had done this thing, you know, and I I felt like I was like 24 years old, and I felt like I've really accomplished something. I've proven myself, and I had this thought that like if I showed this to anybody who's hiring somebody, that they're going to acknowledge that here's a person who, have, for nothing else, they've proven for four years that they can show up to work early, you know, like yeah. um, even if you don't know anything about the military beyond that, or about about special operations, or about any of these courses. That like here's somebody who's been able to be dedicated to something, and I think that people just didn't really understand. Yeah. And and in 2000, late 2006, 2007, they certainly they're like 
people didn't know what to do with you. Like, well, you, I mean, I had a guy in an, um, ask me when I handed off my resume to a bar, the brand new bar that was open. I was like, just be a bar back. I'll fucking do the dishes, man. I'm not, I'm not trying to manage anything. Like, give me the, give me the, I, I have no problem being the fucking new guy. I've done it. I've, I'm a master of being the new guy. Yeah. Um, and I'll, 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 I'll work for it. Um, but the guy asked me like, well, have you ever, you know, it's, it's a service injury. Have you ever served before? Have you ever been a server before? I was like, well, I serve my country, you know, kind of thing. Like, does that, and he just, there was just nothing. It was like, yeah, okay, we'll, well, we'll look at this and call you back. You know, I never did sort of thing. I'm like, I just want a fucking shot. I just want, like, I applied a Jamba juice, you know, like for eight bucks an hour, I coming out of being a, a, you know, a ranger medic. And I'm like, I couldn't, I was like, what the fuck? And so I started to get a little bitter about it. Like, do I have no value in society? Uh, and the more and more that I would submit and, and not happen, it was just, it got, you know, you get that like feeling you know internally and then maybe you you present yourself with that feeling as you move forward like you become that person who's kind of like bitter about things and because you're bitter um it doesn't it doesn't really play well but i was i started the testing process for the fire department at that time and um uh i just i think there was still something on the table there and i had um i had i had convinced my dad to go run a half marathon with me off the couch, man, the guy's not like, you know, he was kind of, you know, exercise a little bit. So let's go do this new, new experience. I just needed new things at that time. I've been out for a couple of months and we went and ran this half marathon. It was great. You know, like it was a really cool thing to go do with my dad. And, um, we were real happy and having coffees afterwards and found out that one of my guys got killed mm-hmm. in Iraq on the deployment that, um, I would have been on had I, you know, uh, had I stayed in. And it, I remember it hit me like a fucking truck, you know, do you remember uh, the circumstances? Um, it, I th- I'm pretty sure it was. I'm pretty sure it was IED, and um, I do know to the extent that his injuries <clears throat> were to the extent that he needed to be cracked. Um, and yeah, it's just you. It's like fuck. You feel. I felt in that moment that I had let him down. That I wasn't there to you know to do the thing that I was supposed to do. And you know, it's not that he didn't have a great medic. There was a fucking. There's a. Uh, you know, somebody with the same amount of training, the same amount of similar amount of experience. It just, you just feel that way. And you put it, you put it on your own shoulders. And I was like, I got to go back. I got to go back. So I was in the testing process with the fire department. And I was like on my second interview and I had an opportunity. I was trying to go into the Air Force for pararescue. And I had too many tattoos. The Air Force wouldn't let me in. Um, <laughs> and, uh, holy fuck. Yeah. And like, um, they were even saying like we're not taking any branch any, any prior service now unless you've had the same job in the branch of service prior to this. I was like, well, I was a special Which, operations medic. I want to be a PJ. I want to be a special operations medic. They go, holy shit, you're like one of the only people we've seen who can do this. But I have a leg sleeve. I have a tattoo for my knee to my ankle, and they go, that's disqualifying. You can't have that. What um, the fuck, Air Force? Yeah. So I went back channel. I got a hold of going back to Bob Vaughn. My uh, the PJ was uh, working on Peoria Fire Department under my dad. Um, he goes, you want to, you want to do this? We'll back channel you. And there's a, there's a team in, uh, Davis Monthens in Tucson. And he goes, they have an in-house selection, um, that they do. If you can pass their in-house selection, then they'll backdoor you, um, and get you into the pipeline and do it that way. It's like, okay, fucking when's the date. And, and I prepared for it. I really, I mean, I, I was like center line focus on, I'm going and doing this. And, um, I went and did the selection. I passed it. Um, there's about 30 guys there. Um, they were pretty much all prior service, uh, like recon cats and a couple of the Rangers and shit. And it was a good time, man. It was a good, like smoke fest. You know, yeah. we did all this stuff. We did the, you know, the PT test and everything, but then it was just like, 
you know, the, the, just the break off thing. I was like, I missed this, you know, like, yeah. um, and they still couldn't get me, um, get me through. But that selection date, um, was on the same day that the fire, my fire academy would have started. And so I had to choose between the fire department or to go to the selection. Oh, and I chose the selection and I gave up my spot on the, on the fire department and, um, and it still didn't work out. Yeah, and they still couldn't get me in. God. I mean, and there was a, there was you know there was a there was an E9 there who was really pushing for me, and they couldn't get past the the bureaucracy of the guy has tattoos. Meanwhile, half the guys on the team on that particular team are fucking decked out, covered. But once you're in, it's a different thing than getting in. So, um, God, that is so fucking dumb. So I just I was like, now I got nothing. Now I'm, now I'm really like fuck, like fuck, 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 fuck. What do I do now? And I had a good friend of mine who I, I, um, I was in range regiment with, who's a medic. Um, you know, I was fucking drinking, and I was like, "What do I do, man? I fucking this is my career path. I just gave it up." And this, I wanted to be on that department since I was six years old, and I just gave it up for this. And he goes, "Fuck it, just come come to school with me." I went. He's like, "Yeah, I'm gonna go to school in Indiana." So I I packed up like right. I go, "Yeah, I'll call you back." And started throwing shit in the backpack, and uh, I just two days later. I was driving from Phoenix to Indiana and ended up going to college and doing that. And about half, uh, three quarters of the way through that college experience, I had an opportunity. I was, I was starting to kind of like funnel that college experience into wanting to work for the DEA um, after I, I graduated. And and I got a, had an opportunity uh, from one of my friends who um, uh, was also a ranger medic in, in my company. And he's like, hey, you want to you want to come and do the DEA uh, fasting? They need, they need a medic uh, to contract. And I was like... Uh, yeah, I'd love to do that. You know, I got uh, about a year left in school and they go, no, we need them. Like, you need to be here in like a week. Like, bro, I got finals, you know, like I'm in college. And he goes, do you want to do this? Yes or no? Like, I need to know, like now we need to submit the paperwork. You need to go through and do all this stuff. And um, I'm like, yeah, I'm in. So I had to go to all my professors and say, I need to take my finals a couple weeks early. And they go, we haven't finished the, we haven't finished the semester yet. And I was like, I don't care. I just need to take these, I need to take my finals. So I, I, I breezed through my finals and was on a flight um, to the East Coast. You and, passed them all? Yeah. Oh, shit. Yeah. Goddamn. Yeah. It's, yeah, college was, yeah, it was what it was. Was there any element of uh, being the salty veteran in college and being like, are you fucking kidding me? Oh, yeah. Well, like I was, so I was studying, I wanted, I was really interested in why we went to war, you know, at that time. Um, and so I was studying essentially uh, international relations. And politics and a lot of the classes I was taking was on terrorism and political violence and and these discussions would you know the whole course was discussions about these these elements and there was time I had somebody in a class call me a terrorist for fighting in Bush's war and it was like every ounce of control to not pick up my fucking desk and throw it and at prove his that motherfucker right face yeah and it was just that like I literally had to get up and walk out of the classroom you know like those moments of contention and you have it's 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 tricky you know um because you're like I've experienced these things that we're talking about and even the person who's teaching it hasn't really experienced it they've read it in a book and good on them yeah. um but these elements of it and like you're getting this a little bit twisted you know yeah, about it's, well it's all in theory and that, that's the problem with people like that uh you know, when, when the most of the people that teach those courses and a lot of the kids that go through that and then ultimately, you know, become, uh, you know, assistants and then professors and, you know, and then they're fucking pundits and then they're political advisors and, you know, and they're they're people that have never really fucking done anything. Right. You know, what's that adage? Those who can do those who can't teach, uh, you know, and that, that that's one of the big problems. I mean, I, I, I applaud your ability to not 
smack the dude, although, uh, you know, I, I probably would have. And, and it sounds like the motherfucker probably needed it, you know. Uh, but, but uh, you know, the that, that whole, uh, I think, you know, principle that exists in, in so many of our universities and, and if you want to call them higher educations, uh, I'd call them more like lateral education, not higher. But, uh, but you know, they just they they paint an incomplete fucking picture you know and and they uh, again it's it's all in theory and not in reality you know and there's a big goddamn difference between those two but um and at any rate so did you when you took those finals did did that put you to the point where you were graduating or you just finished no. with that semester no I, I was done with that semester and i took the next pretty much took the next semester off and went and and did um only did a few months doing yeah. that job and it was a cool job yeah. Um, it was a, definitely a different view, a uh, different perspective than being a ranger. You know, I got on the ground and, you know, my buddy picked me up at the airport, you know, like. Was it like the Blackwater experience essentially or was it? Yeah, it was through Blackwater. Uh, um, was kind of the conduit. Oh, okay. It was, it was still Blackwater. Yeah. Um, and. Um, was it just mobile security type shit or? No, it was, uh, so the, the gig was to be attached to the DEA fast um, oh, okay. team as their medic because they didn't have medics in house. So yeah. um, they had like a. Uh, like a same with the comms they had like a soft comms a guy and a, and a medic who they would attach and um but it's cool i got to do a lot of different things you know i got to do i got to run an aid station there um and work with um um their version the afghan version of what they were standing up of the dea and do training with them and so it was, just, it was a different it was a different experience you know we had a car and we could you know we went out you know <laughs> like we went out into town you know yeah. into Kabul and like uh, the, the day that I landed, my buddy was like, hey, you want to go? There's like a gathering of people getting together, like whatever. We went and had some beers at somebody's house in downtown. I was like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> this is a totally different thing, man. Yeah. You know, than any That's other times trip. I've landed in Afghanistan. And like it, there was there was there was especially at the time there's still more freedom. And and um, but it was it was cool. It was, it was, a, it, was a, it was a worthy experience. Yeah. And I ended up coming back after and then i had a you know i was a college student who's now not only the salty guy but a salty guy with a bunch of fucking money in my pocket so yeah. like it got real interesting uh had a really good time uh for the rest <laughs> of that college experience oh christ uh two things when you were on with the dea fast team uh was there any behind the curtain shit that you kind of uncovered that you're like this is really how this shit fucking goes down or, or were you kept kind of out of the loop. As yeah. Far. I mean, I wasn't on the team. I was attached to the team. Right. right. Like just, I didn't go through the, Like, so, um, just being in that environment. Yeah, I mean, did, it did a lot of the stuff. Cause like a lot of the stuff that I was studying, even on my own and in these classes up to that point had, I had a pretty good idea of, 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 uh, um, of the situation, but it, to be able to see it firsthand, um, you know, and I don't think anybody, maybe there are some people, but very few people really have the whole picture, no matter what, right? Like, yeah. um, there, there, there are people out there that do, they're just, you know, there's not that many of them. Yeah. Um, and that was only one element of, of what I was doing there. There was other things that like people were working in and like my, the team, half of that time that I was there, the actual team that I was attached to was on vacation. So it was like, I was trying to find stuff to do. And there was other elements that were around that having a soft medic add on is always, it's like, Hey, can I get, yeah, fucking come along with us. Let's do yeah. this thing. Let's do that thing. Yeah. So, um, I got, there's a little variety of, of, of stuff in there. And, um, yeah. but it was, yeah, it was, it was a great experience to then be able to bring that back into the classroom as well, because there are, it, there's another thing that's, they're few and far between, but there are professors in universities who can, who understand like, this is a tool, this, this person, this human being in my class is an asset because they have something that I don't have. Yeah. And I had one professor, uh, particularly who would, 
who would make a statement, you know, about Afghanistan. They would they would talk about, um, you know, the rise of uh, the Taliban and things like that. And then they would look to me and literally in front of the class ask me, like, would you agree with that? You know, so th- there were people, it was rare, but there were people that really, truly valued that in that environment. Um, those were the classes I loved to go to because I felt, I felt like my experience uh, meant something um, in that in that spot. For sure. Did you at least once slowly and dramatically get up when they asked you that and just like take over the class and be like, well, what I found was like just <laughs> completely dick stomp them? Uh, uh, I just, n- n- no, yeah, they're not stood up. I would do it from the seating position. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, it's, you know, there's generalities, right? Yeah. That in order to teach, a, you know, especially an undergraduate level class, like you have to kind of speak in generalities of like, this is what happens in Afghanistan. Like, well, in certain provinces, that's correct. And in other places, that's not necessarily culturally accurate. You know, like there's, and it was the same thing with like, with like living in Mexico. There are certain places where it's fucking dangerous and I would not go with my family. Yeah. Certain states, like, and then there's other places that aren't. And if you, you know, um, to, to generalize the whole thing is, is a good way to begin an understanding, uh, but um, you know, it's, it's the nuance that really yeah. steers uh, yeah. true understanding. That no, makes sense. When you were uh, just the medic for the fast team, uh, were there any cool operations or anything that you went on with them, or was it pretty benign by comparison to your ranger deployments? The cool, the the cool missions there. Um, it was usually to hit. Um, um, like places that were storing like a lot of opium, you know, the problem with it was just having to get permission from the local elders to be able to operate in that area. And it was a lot of dry holes, essentially like yeah. places where we knew there was bundles, of, you know, yeah. um, they that, knew you were coming. And yeah. Around. That, that wasn't always the case, but that was a frustrating element of it. It's like, if we didn't have to fucking ask for permission, we could be more successful at this. Yeah. But like, I'm like the medic who's like, I'm like, I'm, I'm not the guy planning yeah. his ops. Like I'm literally just sitting here uh, and let me know if somebody needs a band aid. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm not going <laughs> to get too involved with you guys' thing. Yeah. Um, but it was really cool. Like we had, uh, you know, we had a, there was a, a King air jet that we were able to take and, and uh, to different places and, and do kind of a different element of stuff where, where, where um, for me, like, like kind of more, it was the first time doing any kind of like low profile type stuff where like, we're, you know, you're, you're getting in a taxi cab and you're dressed out in a certain way and you're going and, and doing surveillance stuff. And like those, like definitely not what most strangers do. They have a re- reconnaissance uh, element that I wasn't a part of. So yeah. just the, the few times that I got to do that, I thought it was uh, like the experience of it was pretty cool. And again, like I'm like, I'm kind of like very junior person there just observing what is going on with everyone else yeah. and, um, and trying to learn as much as I can without speaking. Yeah. Know? Yeah. No, it's fucking cool, man. Uh, I mean, it seems, it seems like big picture wise opium plays such a huge role in, in a lot of, facets in that country and in our relationship with theirs but um you know the the amounts of opium and and how it's essentially we're we're funding our own fucking enemy there in, in a lot of ways and it's just it's a it's a it's a real muddy messy it's fucking a, mix it's a fucking quagmire for yeah. sure it's a knot um yeah and like as soon as you start to think that you figured it out through reading yeah. and through experience you're like oh wait no yeah. okay there's, <laughs> no, a, there's another kind of a knot within this knot yeah. and yeah, it's yeah. Uh, all right, so you you do that. Uh, you come back and you did you finish college or? Um, I got so I I got within I had three classes left. Yeah, and but they were spaced out to where I had to take them in three semesters, and I got to the point where I was like, I don't really like. I went to Indiana to go to school. Um, was it a big school or Purdue? Oh no shit! Yeah, so uh, 
for fucking Purdue. Um, yeah. So that makes me think one one quick thing then, like a combat veteran, Army Ranger, you know, did a, did a medic stint for the FAST team. Now you're a student at Purdue. Like how much ass did you slay at fucking Purdue? It was there's a lot of it there. Yeah, it was decent. So like I was I was <laughs> at the time I really and one of the things actually why I I could have stayed on that deployment I could have extended and and continued to do the DA thing for for uh, quite a bit longer. It was a really cool job and the guys were really cool. I loved doing it. Uh, but I was training. I wanted to be a professional triathlete, um, and I'd been training up to that point. And it's really difficult when you're in Afghanistan to find a swimming pool to yeah. train in. Nah. And, um, so and I finally actually did. It was like three days before I left. So it was a small <laughs> one. Um, anyway, like. Um, I was I was on the triathlon team there at Purdue and and um, I was it's plenty of hot ass there the yeah and like so when you're the guy who's like you have a little bit more experience than the other <laughs> the other guys around you and you've got you know eighty thousand dollars in your bank account and you've yeah. got a nice apartment and like yeah. you know your bar is stocked with eighteen year you know Jameson and yeah. you know the and other Miller kids White. are the other kids are you know slam you know. Uh, slamming keystones it's like you want some you want some patron or you have to drink that piss um yeah it was it was good it was a really good time i had a really really good time um uh, a lot of yeah a lot yeah. of really good times there yeah. um and in college so three three classes short do you have any desire to finish that out or you just don't give a fuck i just i mean i got what i came there for yeah you know i i, I did i was never really i, I never went to college with the, like the i'm going to get a degree yeah. That was never my driving force. I wanted the information. I wanted to know why we are in Iraq and Afghanistan. I wanted to know more about these wars that I just fought in. Yeah. And I also wanted to be around uh, another one of my guys, you know, the dude yeah. who, I was in, uh, who I was in with and, and being able to be his roommate um, was phenomenal. You know, like it was, a, it was a very necessary thing when it was. And I got back from, from you know, Afghanistan that, that, that last time, I think in like 2009. I was like, it's, uh, you know. I don't really want to be in Indiana for the next year and a half. I want to go out yeah. to Colorado and snowboard and climb and get on with my life. Yeah. So the, the degree itself was never really, it was never a motivating thing. And the idea of going back, um, I don't like to move backwards. Yeah. Um, there, I'm not saying I won't go to, to school. I, I went to college after I, uh, again and did another another program for um, for physiology when I was, when I was there. And um, same thing, you know, yeah. I was like, Pretty much a semester from graduating, I left again because I was like, yeah. I don't fucking care. Yeah. Like I got like two hundred and forty something college credit hours. Yeah, right now you got the information. I got know. the information. Yeah. So speaking of that, taking one step back, the, the Iraq and Afghanistan. So having fought there, having gone to college, trying to to seek uh, some sort of um, you know reasoning as to why we're there and and, and uh, reconcile that. Looking back on it now, you know where where you sit, both you know professionally, personally, mentally. Uh, what are your thoughts on on both places? And I know that could be its own fucking podcast, yes. but just you know, a synopsis of, of each. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast, with first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. It's another knot, right? But I think what we did in hindsight, it's always, you know, hindsight is typically 2020. We can look at it a little bit more clearly. Um, we entered into a war with an ideology that is malleable, you know, 
terrorism, like a war on terrorism, you think about that. Um, that's not a definitive en enemy. And we have never had in Afghanistan, we've never had, um, and this has come out, like we've never had like a definitive strategy there. And it changes depending on who is in command. Um, and it's just kind of continues to roll on. And the people who are actually engaged in the fighting have done everything that they can. They, they've done a phenomenal job, but there's been, from the get-go, there hasn't been a clear, concise definition of what it is that we're fighting and what does success look like. And that has been the primary factor that has kept us engaged in this thing for so long. And not that the feelings of the people matter so much, but like that leaves an entire generation, multiple generations of 20 years worth of Afghan veterans now, it's a GWAT veteran, um, who are going, what the fuck, you know? And I'm, I'm one of them, you know, like, okay. Uh, and you start looking at, depending on how, how, which approach that you want to take to it, you look at like the, the financing of war and like where the Afghan military was at in 2000 compared to where they were at in 2013, where their, their, their numbers ballooned from like 2000 to 200,000. And every single one of those soldiers who's making, you know, $1,800 a year is costing predominantly the U.S. taxpayer close to $40,000 a year in their training and their boots and their, um, and all of that. So the amount of money that is changing hands in order to keep us engaged in that, there is somebody there along the lines is benefiting in a way that, that who is in, a, in enough of a uh, position of authority to keep that thing going so that those revenue streams keep going to where they are. Um, and to me, that's, that is the, you know, you say like, follow the money. Um, that's the most logical um, explanation in, in a nutshell of like what got us started down the road and um, why we are where we are. Now, I understand like there was like with the events of September 11th, there was something that needed to be rectified. That was an egregious attack on American soil, and there needed to be decisive uh, action against that. Um, and um, concise is probably not um, what happened. There was there was action, and it was the people who were engaged in the action who were, um, you know, who had the boots on, were doing everything that they were told to do for the most part, and, and executing it exceptionally. But then the thing just keeps changing and keeps changing. And what the fuck? So, um, it's, it's, that's the, the nutshell answer, I think. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I, I would largely agree. I, I think, you know, to me, looking back on it, um, you know, having been in for several years prior to nine 11 during, and then after from, from where I sat, it, it's in, you know, admittedly it's, it's going to be more biased in what I'm about to say based on where I was sitting at the time, not naive to that fact, but, um, it seemed like a concise action happened initially, you know, it happened. Okay. We're going in, went in and, and largely kicked the hornet's nest over and, and whipped some ass for a few months. To me, it was at that point where it was like, okay, kind of got them on their heels at least a little bit. Uh, you know, they, they've scurried into the, into the hills at least, you know, they're not running shit anymore and just, you know, doing whatever they want with, with, uh, you know, complete fucking freedom now what? And, and then that's where it just kind of dissipated into ambiguity and, and nobody really knew what the fuck that looked like. And, and I, I think it, it crept into exactly what you're talking about after that. Um, Afghanistan, 
even even as muddy as that is, is still far more clear cut from my perspective than than Iraq. Absolutely. And I was in Iraq. Um, you know, to me, again, I agreed 100 percent. Hindsight's 2020. Uh, I'm curious to get your your thoughts on Iraq, too. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's it. I, I think a lot of that, obviously, most wars now are pretty political. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that what we did similarly, right, where there was an action that was taken. Um, and then um, after about three months, the, the, the main effort of what we were attempting to do had been completed. Uh, but then you had this military, uh, you had these, all these people who had these jobs before that now they weren't. And we had this, I think we had an opportunity right there. And again, it's hindsight's 2020, uh, was, you know, to, um, to do something differently. And, uh, when those people were looking to us to go, okay, now, now, you know, how are we going to feed our families, all that, that, that moment of like, what it would have cost us to, to set something up there and then get out, um, in hindsight, uh, would have been a lot less than those people eventually going, I got to fucking figure something out to, to feed my kids here. And when there's an option, um, you know, to make money doing, uh, something that we would consider on our side to be, you know, nefarious, um, and, uh, you know, starting to, you know, you know, manufacture, and this is fast forward, but like manufacturing suicide vests or taking, you know, varying IDs and doing those things, um, you know, uh, then, you know, as a parent, I'm like, fuck, like you, you're, you, you have to do something, you know? And so you, you end up creating, we ended up creating a lot more people that, um, I think were engaged in things from a standpoint of just trying to, um, uh, and I'm not justifying those actions, right? Uh, you have a choice to make. Um, but, uh, things got murky as a result of that. Anytime people, uh, a group of people are without, um, uh, meaningful employment, uh, and uh, without an education, um, they are easily, um, uh, more easily um, mo- motivated into violence for a small amount of money. I'd say probably manipulated. Yes, yeah. yes, absolutely. Um, indoctrinated, um, you know, and we see that in a lot of, um, you know, we see that with a lot of organizations, yeah. um, gang organizations, uh, you know, they're recruited in a kind of a, uh, in a similar fashion. Yeah. The, uh, yeah, I agree. On, on Iraq, it's you know it's, it's one of the more common questions I, I get asked, and, and I do like to ask of, of combat veterans that have been there. Uh, is kind of what their take. I mean, my take very simply is that you know because I, I think where where a lot of people struggle, and, and you know, to me, served or not served, there's this you know almost uh, ideal of you know you, you don't want to think that you know that, that there's even people that are considering thinking. That, that these guys died in vain, you know, and, and to me, it's, it's very easily and justifiably no. And that, you know, to me with, with all of us, and I, and I, I suspect that you're very similar to me in that way. And, and, and I think most service members, uh, have the, the, the notion, uh, the internal notion that, you know, we all volunteered to do, you know, whatever our, our government decided that, that, you know, we, we should be doing to the best of our ability. And, and that's what we did, you know, and, and irrespective of why you're there or, or who's pulling the fucking strings or, or whatever is that, you know, our, our country collectively puts the people, you know, in the, in the positions to tell us where to go, what to do and how to do it. 
uh, you know, and, and a, a similar percentage of the population rogers up to to go get their hands dirty on behalf of Uncle Sam. And it really can can just be that fucking simple. You know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. Well, well, it's not twenty twenty going into every one of these situations. And, uh, you know, and so to me, like just knowing that that all of the guys that, that didn't come back, you know, they, they died doing a, a job they love with guys that they uh, you know, love and trust and, and, and for people that they love, you know? And so uh, I, I don't think it needs to, to try to be figured out any further than that, because I think it's just, uh, it's counterproductive and, and there's no, no good that's going to come out of it. You know, you, you volunteer knowing that, that that's an option uh, and, and that's going to happen and you, and you see it happen. And, and that's just part of the fucking gig. But um, at any rate, I, I, I appreciate your, your insight on it. Um, when when you finished uh, and you decided to move to, to Denver, what was kind of the thought process now into doing what you did there and then ultimately transitioning into deciding to, to want to write for a living? Um, so, like, again, I was trying to do the triathlon thing professionally in Denver, Boulder areas where the best you know triathletes for the most part in the in the country live and i wanted to compete against them and 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 do that and so um it's almost impossible to make a living doing that uh, to, uh, even even if you're like it's like the there's maybe about 300 350 professional triathletes in the yeah. u.s and maybe 10 percent of them actually make a living off yeah. of it um, so you have to be like you know so i um you know i coached you know like um alongside and and um and did that thing um uh for people who were coming up and um and the i actually ended up opening a gym and uh with my fiance at the time and that ended up not working out and uh either one of them uh so she left and that, that ended up causing the business to, to yeah. go under there was some a little bit of uh, she wasn't canadian too was she? no no she was a yoga teacher though so there's a theme here it's uh, the fucking pants it's the pants it's i it is pants. it is the pants the only it, reason any guy goes into, uh, into a yoga studio most of the time is the pants it's yeah it's nice that uh i think seven out of every 10 women now travel in yoga <laughs> pants as well anytime you're in an Can airport argue. it's like a yoga studio Pro provided they have any business wearing them yes Yes. Because uh, there are some that don't, but at any rate. But that went under and, and uh, you know, uh, and I had other gyms and other stuff going on. But in the in the wake of that um, relationship um, going um, and the business going, I didn't uh, like um, I was I was pretty much on a friend's couch. I uh, didn't have a place to live. And, um, you know, she had. Um, she had taken it all. I mean, the ice cube trays, you know, included. And that was nice uh, over. Yeah, and uh, and uh, the the hardest bit was the dog that I had that I got after I got back from Iraq, um, probably three years before we met. She took the dog as well, and I was like, I can let all the other stuff go to a degree, but that one was it was a hang up for me. I had um, I got accepted into another program, uh, a college program in uh, Northern Arizona, and I had kind of packed up what I had left. Um, to including the little shred of dignity that I had and was going <laughs> to uh, um, head south. And I just couldn't get around um, leaving my dog. And uh, so um, the next morning. <laughs> I feel like a, a the, fucking mission took place. The, the next morning, uh, the cops uh, knocked on the door and uh, asked me if the dog was uh, in, in my friend's apartment. And uh, uh, I was arrested. Um, no shit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I w there was three felonies that got slapped on for for God that. Damn yeah. felonies. Yeah, yeah. What kind of dog was this? Um, it's just a little, a little frumpy mutt, man. Uh, <laughs> you know, a little pound mutt. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so she had claimed that I broke into her house in the middle of the night and all that stuff, and um, 
And so now the college was out, right? I didn't have that option anymore. Were you convicted of any of those? No, no. It was all, it all thrown out. Like the whole time um, they were going through the, the process, I spent a few days in jail in the county. And then, uh, <laughs> which, is a, which is a cool bit on its own. Why are you in here? I stole a fucking dog. Yeah. And all the guys were just like, that bitch, you know? Like <laughs> they were like, I deserve to be in here. I stole a car. Oh, I was, you know, I was hopped great. up on meth and I stole, I'm like, you don't, you shouldn't fucking be in here, man. Yeah. And I'm like, hey, it's just kind of how it breaks sometimes. <laughs> but like, I, you know, you know, I listened to 911 call afterwards my attorney ended up getting it and you know the crying and like oh he was a I, he's a vet he's iraq he's a blackwater guy he's dangerous and all this stuff and that's all it took you know the God cops showed up to the front door like thinking up. they're gonna have to fight me and i'm like hung over as i'll get out I'm like yeah. uh you're like fat thor sitting there. yeah yeah definitely haggard <laughs> thor man that's me what the fuck um so yeah so it, it like it really like it like I couldn't leave Colorado yeah. and I was, I was real down and out and back on my buddy's couch and not have a job and didn't have anything, you know? Um, and now I was facing charges and I was on parole and, and, uh, um, I just, I didn't know what to do. I just, I was writing. So I started writing, I started writing, I started writing and I started writing about anything and everything. And there was just something in me that cracked and I was writing and I was writing and, I did that and didn't show anybody any of that stuff for a year and a half. Now all those those charges ended up getting thrown out, and a lot of it had to do with the fact that um, she was she was a bitch uh, to, uh, with a prosecutor. You know, like I was trying to go to my grandma's birthday, you know, out of state, and, she, and like she's like, no, he's not allowed to leave, and so she wouldn't give permission. Like even the prosecutor was like, all right, there's this isn't you awesome. poor bastard. So they they threw it out, right? I mean, it still cost me I think like fifteen grand in attorneys' fees and all that. Did time. you get the dog back? No. Fucking nope. Christ. I actually, so I went into the police station right after I got out of jail and I went to file a, um, uh, a stolen items report uh, for a dog to the same officer that arrested me four days earlier. And the guy's like, you gotta be kidding me. Get out of here, man. I was like, no, man. That's like, and I had all the paperwork of like, this is, I could prove that I had owned this dog for three years before I'd met this, uh, this woman. And so, but he's like, I'm, I'm not filing this report. I'm like, you came and arrested me because she said that, you know, anyway, so it just, it never, I never got the dog back. And, um, but now I was stuck in, in Colorado and I'd been writing a lot. And, um, a friend of mine who wrote for a, for a, um, at the time, a popular military blog site that I, I didn't have anything. And the whole veteran thing was not, I wasn't tracking on that necessarily. And, um, he wanted me to write a story about, um, being a medic in Iraq and, and, give it to him and he used it under his name, you know, cause like he had a, he had to have a quota and I wrote about Op Simpson, uh, and that night and, um, people, it resonated with people and people were like, we loved more of this. And I was like, I've been writing this whole time. Um, so that's how less we forget came about. And, um, I'd been slugging it away, uh, at school and at work for years. Um, and when that, when that hit, it was just like, I really didn't think I didn't, I didn't really think more than like the people that were my company, really. Maybe 100, 150 people were gonna give a shit about this story. Um, it was just, it was a way to kind of capture what it felt like to be a ranger at this particular time. Um, and um, it just went, it, it just went. And I was like, what the fuck? Um, and like, I made, I made more in a month on this thing than I did, you know, working 60, 70 hours a week in my gym for the last year. And I was like, what? Like, this is a thing. Uh, uh, like, and so that's when I was like, I'm fucking out of here. And I sold everything that I owned minus a single backpack. If it didn't fit in that backpack, it wasn't coming with me. And I moved to Costa Rica and I sat, I was in Costa Rica, wrote the second book, the follow up on assimilation, which had heavily to do with that process of getting out and, you know, having the dog taken and all those things. But, um, I was like, shit, um, I could, like, I really, 
enjoy writing and I'm good at it, it seems like, and um, people dig it and I'm going to keep going. So I started traveling, traveled through like 50 different countries and um, was on a, uh, a challenge to see how far I could get. A friend of mine, Marty Scovelin, um, presented it to me while I was traveling. I was like, let's just see how far we can get from Denver with nothing but a hundred bucks in three weeks. And um, how far did you get? We got to Slovenia. No shit. Yeah. On a hundred bucks? Yeah. Were you, were you handing out blowjobs and truck stops? Yeah, the I think that was Marty's uh, gig <laughs> while I was napping in the bushes. Uh, but we leveraged we leveraged our community. We, you know, we we're like, hey, help us get to the next town. And so people would people would uh, they were um, they were betting kind of uh, you know they're like I'll give you ten cents a mile that you get or five cents or a penny a mile. And like we set up some other stuff where like if somebody donated five thousand dollars to this thing, I'll get a tattoo of your business logo, <laughs> you know, the size of my hand. And like so, it did all, you do any of that? I, I did, yeah, yeah. Oh, I got yeah. the tattoo on my on my thigh uh, here. It's a uh, <laughs> of uh, of uh, the company that paid five grand for. It. But so all the money that we raised went to a, um, a charity organization that helps veterans oh, transition. Right. Uh, helps them with resumes and helps them in a lot of different ways. Uh, suicide prevention, all this stuff, a lot of different um, uh, things. And we raised, I don't know, twenty-five or $30,000 in oh, three wow. weeks. Um, and it really felt good. I was like, I, was, I'm, I had this mission. I was with another guy who gets it. It was a, it was a guy, uh, Marty was a ranger in first, first ranger battalion. And, and to be able to spend that time with somebody else engaged in this mission where we were, you know, um, you know, sleeping on dirt and, you know, it felt really good. And the momentum from that just carried for me. I just kept traveling and writing. That's where my third book came out of was those experiences of, of, um, indulging myself in all these different cultures and, uh, and experiences and, um, yeah. So, I mean, at that point you sold everything. I mean, did you have enough, I mean, uh, just thinking of it like logistics wise and, and realistically, uh, I mean, how are you supporting yourself traveling to all these different countries and writing? Yeah. I mean, traveling is not terribly expensive when you're a single guy and you're willing to be, you know, like, um, you know, like you sleep in a hostel that's $7 a night. And, you know, um, it, like I also had then royalties coming in from lest we forget, um, and then like I sold, again, I sold my truck, I sold my snowboards, I sold my bicycles that I was racing with. I sold everything minus this backpack. So I had a, I had a, I had enough of a cushion, um, uh, sitting there where I felt all right, but the money that was coming in from lest we forget was ample. I mean, I was saving probably 85, 90% of what I was making oh, wow. while I was traveling around the world and, and just being a dirt bag, you know, like, <laughs> uh, camping out in places and, yeah. and, you know, and if people are like, Oh yeah, you crash out of my place, or, you know, whatever. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Any, any weird close calls when you were doing that? Like uh spidey senses going up, people fucking with you or anything, or was it pretty, uh, I had a time I was in just traveling across Australia in a van and I think it was in Brisbane. Um, and I've been surfing there a little bit and, uh, I was camped out uh, and I get this knock at the door, the van door. Um, I'm like kind of settling in. I'm eating some fucking stew. And uh, this this guy, uh, this old guy, um, was, you know, I opened the door. I'm like, you know, he's probably 55, 60 years old. I'm like, what's the deal? And, and he's like, hey, so, uh, hey. <laughs> Want to fuck? Yeah. And I was like, what? The, oh, yeah. He's like, we see you busy right now? And I'm like, yeah, just eating dinner. What the, what the fuck? He's like, yeah, so, uh, so. And like I glanced down and his dick is hanging out of his <laughs> pants. And I'm like. You're like, come on in. Uh, it was like this, like <laughs> slow closing of the van door, like the slide door to the click and like the lock. And then it was like, oh fuck, you know, like the guy's out there. And then probably immediately after, I was like, I have to piss. I have to. Go. And I was like, I'm not going out there right now, you know, kind yeah. of thing. Like that guy is, he's feeling a little rejected, you yeah. know, like this could get bad. But that was probably the the closest bad call that I had. In, God in, damn. Yeah. 
What, uh, during the, all of your travels to these different places and, and writing, uh, is there kind of a, a coolest place that, that you remember being? Uh, and then also, is there one place that uh, inspired you writing-wise the most? Um, what struck me, um, like, like, holy shit, I didn't realize, you know, because there's places where you're like, you were kind of amped up about before you get there, you're excited about, like, I wanted to go to Thailand. I've been thinking about Thailand for a long time. <laughs> you go, you're like, okay, this is what it is. But it was the Yukon in Northern Canada, like in Alaska and into the Yukon where I was like, like I was just blown away by the freedom and the space. And, you know, there's like, it would see more moose and bear than people. Um, it was just awesome to just camp out in this crystal clear stream with salmon in it. And there's nobody around, you know, it was, it was just majestic. And, um, yeah, it, it, like I wasn't thinking that like Northern Canada would be this incredible place, but yeah. Um, yeah and so that and uh, is like Baja for me as well, where I was yeah. like, I wasn't expecting anything out of Southern Baja and it is, it is wide open and wild and you can camp out on a beach there for a month and, you know, have, you know, nobody fucks with you. Um, it's just warmer there, you know, like, yeah. uh, so like, that's how America used to be then. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it, I like, I really look at it like, it's like how California, um, probably was in like the forties and fifties, yeah. uh, where it's real, it's real wide open and, and, and whatnot. And like, so like the places that surprise you, I think yeah. are the ones that are really, but like in order to do that, it's like, it kind of requires like, I'm not going to plan. I'm just going to go wing it. and wing it. And the experiences, uh, um, of a place largely have to do with the time and the yeah. people who are there. Um, and, um, yeah, a lot of, a lot of just really cool experiences with other humans. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I've taken my uh, kids on, on long camping trips the last uh, number of years over the summer. And, you know, we have a general plan of here are the places that we're going to go, but that's it. Like we're not lining up fucking activities or hotels or, or whatever. It's like, we'll figure it out when we get there. And, and to me, that's my favorite type of fucking traveling, you know? Uh, because to me, like when there's an itinerary and, and it, I mean, it turns into a job, you right. know, and, and like it takes most of the fun out of it because not much is a surprise. It's like, well, we planned on doing this, then we're going to do this, then we're going to go here. And then this, this day we're going to do this. And to me, yeah, like it just, it sucks a lot of the adventure out of what's supposed to be a fucking adventure, you know? Well, and it creates an expectation at the yeah. same time of like, oh, and we didn't hit that marker. And yeah. now there's an element of, you could be disappointment, yeah. like, oh, we didn't. So no, you failed, go back home. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, yep. And they've, uh, like, yeah, to, to leave it open to, you know, um, like I, I've always said, like, uh, the adventure doesn't start when the trip does. The adventure starts when something goes wrong. <laughs> so, like, when we're not planning, like, something's going to happen. You know, yeah. like, I had a blowout on the on the on the um, on that Yukon Highway, on the Highway One, the Alaskan Highway. There, um, you know, there's there's not a town, you know, for hundreds of miles. Yeah. And I had a spare, but I didn't even know it because I bought. So, like, I gave myself 24 hours when I landed in Alaska to find and buy a vehicle that I was going to drive south. Um, it was just kind of the game I was playing, like make it interesting, you know? <laughs> so I had, I had consumed a beer awesome. when I was in rip, we were sitting there cold and like, like trying to get our minds off of the suck. And, and like, we started making a list of like, how many places have states have you had a beer in? I think at the time it was like five or six. I was like, I want to have a beer in every state. And so I was on like, fast forward then to this trip. Like I had visited a good ranger buddy, uh, this guy, Nathan Ellison, Hawaii, he was living there. I had my Hawaii beer and I flew to Alaska where I bought the, bought my van and had my Alaska beer and then started driving south. And I had North and South Dakota were the last two states I had left. I had 48 ticked off. And, you know, when you, yeah, like 
there's a lot of opportunity for shit to go wrong and trips like that where there's no planning, but that's when things get interesting. That's where there's a venture. That's where, you know, uh, you have to react to. And, and then that's where the best stories come from, you know, uh, yeah. is having to figure that out. So like, I didn't even know if I had a spare tire because like I bought this, <laughs> like I, I landed, uh, I landed, met, you know, looked on Craigslist, uh, found this van, gave the guy 5,000 bucks for it. And I never even registered the thing in my name. Yeah. And I drove it on his, on his, like the title was in the other guy's name all the way to Panama. Uh, I think I did like 11 border crossings with it. And, Holy shit. Um, but like, it was just a lot of this, like, you, this isn't your vehicle. This is a different guy. I was like, no, no, it's fine. It's fine. It's cool. It's cool. No, no. Total be in. Total be in. So, but like those, like those, those elements are, you know, that's what makes travel interesting. You yeah. know? Um, did you have, like in all the places you've gone, do you know how many countries you've been to? Have you kept track? 50. 50 countries. Yeah. Uh, Portugal was my 50th. And then like, since my daughter was born, I've been a, a little bit like we've been, chilling out for the last three years in our place. I built our, built our house and like, you got built her, it? Uh, had it built. I didn't, oh, okay. I didn't stack the bricks myself. I cleared the, I cleared the roadway to, it's in the desert. Like I made the road, you know, took an ax and a yeah. shovel and did that thing. And then cleared off the property by hands by half acre. And then, um, and then uh, designed the house and then had a, a guy build it who knew more about concrete than I did. If you don't mind me asking, uh, or if you don't mind answering, I guess is a better, better way to say it. Uh, what did it cost for that property down there? At the time, I paid $65 a square foot for a custom build. Yeah. yeah it's it's cool. gone up a little bit, but, yeah. um, you know, you're looking about $100 a square foot is, is, yeah. is, uh, and shit, that's almost double. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's still way cheaper than yeah. here, but I mean, uh, it's all concrete, right? So it's concrete roof, concrete, like it's, it's yeah. a solid. Yeah. That's, you know. that's neat. Um, in, in terms of the 50 countries that you traveled, were there any hiccups? Uh, I mean, with it being post 9 11, uh, and then some obviously, with uh, customs in, in any countries or like any any hangups with that shit like that? Only coming into the U.S. That's it, huh? Every other country is like, welcome. Doesn't and I come back to the U.S. and people are like, looks like you, you know, why were you here? Why were you there? They see all the stamps, you know? Yeah. What? Why do you have an Afghan work visa? Yeah. You know, kind of Bend thing. Bend over, I'll show you. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> and yeah, the only time I've ever been hassled, pulled into secondary and given the fucking, yeah. the deal has been coming yeah. back in the U.S. Yeah. My, uh, so um, uh, Lauren, my, my, my partner, my wife, uh, she got put on a government watch list in the U.S., uh, for it's the two yoga years. pants. It was a yoga pants. Yeah, it, was, it got her. So, but she was already an undocumented worker in, in yeah. Mexico, got kicked out of that country. But yeah, like, so we had a lot of trouble traveling to the US when she was on that watch list. Yeah. Um, that's wild. Yeah. So yeah, a lot of like Walter Sobchak moments, you know, yeah. like, oh, I didn't, you know, fucking fight in Iraq and Afghanistan yeah. to have you give me shit. <laughs> you fucking, fucking tell me. Gigar- you know, like, I'm like, ah, oh, like, yeah. and then she's like, just calm down, take yeah. your breaths, you know, it's like, no, I shouldn't be treated like this, you know, yeah. but it's there, people are doing their job. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I just always found it ironic that like any one of the other countries I've ever gone to, they're like, yeah. welcome. And yeah. Erica's like, no, there, there's uh, I mean, I have a huge heartburn. One of my uh, best friends, Shane, uh, I mean, he lives out of his truck and, uh, and travels all over the place. He's a, he's a nomad that way. And, uh, you know, I, I get a lot of firsthand accounts from him of, of just the, the degradation of legit freedoms in this country as it relates to to living that way like you almost can't do it anymore you know or i mean you can't you can't you can't do it to that level anymore and and there's there's pockets where you can you know it's a little more feasible here or there but it's like the motherfucker can't i mean you can't even stay overnight in a fucking walmart parking lot without getting the cops called on you or you know you're at some fucking park or blm land with some asshole knocking on your window you can't fucking be here like, would you have a permit? Did you did you pay? Like, Jesus fucking yeah, Christ! I'm like, sleeping. I'm out I'm out in the middle of the fucking woods. Like, and, and to me, like, it's such a 
it's such a fucking travesty that, that our country has come to that. You know, it's it just, I mean, I hear what you're saying on Baja being like the last bastion or, you know, Yukon, you know, places where like I, I can see why people, and, and I've even thought of it myself, Northern Idaho and, and uh, you know, parts of, of, you know, anywhere within a few hours of Yellowstone and just, you know, places that are really out in the middle of fucking nowhere where that's about the only place you can go anymore to, to be left the fuck alone. Yeah. And, and even then, like, don't pay your property taxes one year and see what happens. You know, like you can't own anything. Um, you know, it's just it, it's it's frustrating. And, and I find myself more and more wanting to live that way and just almost cut everything loose and just be like, dude, fuck it. You know, but um, anyway, uh, fascinating shit, man. Uh, you live a, an amazing life. Um, I, I love the. Uh, the inspiration that that I feel, frankly, of, of hearing you talk about traveling the way that you do, and it makes me want to do it. Honestly, for everybody listening, I, I would bet it's the same. Um, and I'm right there with you. I mean, the times that I do, I, I always have amazing stories and memories from it. I, I for sure need to do more of it. But um, so, essentially, now what? I mean, obviously, you're writing, but what's what's is there a five year, ten year, twenty year plan, or is it just you're writing and and what happens happens or um, so we're, I've been challenging to get back on the road. You yeah. know, it's been three years. We built a nest. We have it now. Um, my, our daughter's, uh, about three and a half and she's challenging too. She's like, I want to go to new places. She's saying that. And, yeah. um, so our plan had been about th- when she hits about four years old, coming up here this spring, um, that we were going to go and travel as a family for at least a year. Yeah. Uh, and that like really the, the, the game plan is to go, um, you know, nine months to a year and go to new places, go to a different country, live in another country and then come back and like hang out in our spot yeah. in Baja for three or four months yeah. and go and do that. that. The plan that we had made because my daughter is, um, uh, she has citizenship in Mexico, the United States and Canada, she has three passports. Oh, wow. So, um, I thought it'd be a really cool family trip to start off where we're at in Baja and, um, you know, head North toward Alaska to get like an RV, right? Some, something that like some small 20, 24 foot kind of thing, enough that has a toilet and a, and a sink in it and a couple of beds and, um, head up to Alaska and then skirt across Canada and then go down the East coast, uh, all the way down to Yucatan near Belize, Mexico, and then cut back across, so essentially make a giant circle of all of North America. Yeah. And to be able to, like, I've been, I've been, you know, a lot, most all of those places, uh, but to get to experience, have my daughter experience these things and be able to now experience them anew through her innocent eyes. Um, and to give her that, uh, you know, before she even starts, you know, kindergarten to have those travel experiences. Um, that's the goal, right? Yeah. Is to really teach the child through, um, through experience. Um, I think it's, it is, um, um, there's somebody wrote a uh, writer, uh, I don't know, Twain, but said, uh, the, um, that was Emerson. Um, um, the only knowledge comes from experience. Everything else is information. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast with first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. Yeah. Um, And so... Um, you talk about like what you can get education-wise in a university. It's great. You, you, you get a lot of information, uh, but I don't, I'm not entirely convinced that you get knowledge. Um, Amen. Um, so um, I really want to teach my child uh, through experience. She's yeah. bilingual already. She's speaking both Spanish and English. Do you and your wife? 
uh, terribly. She's, I mean, she's correcting me. We try to read her in Spanish every night, and she's like, "No, Poppy, that's not how you say it." And I'm like, that's "Fucking awesome!" All right, dude, you're gonna. I tell her, I go, I go. Poppy's job is to keep you safe. Yeah. Your job is to teach Poppy Spanish. <laughs> so, and she's like, "Okay," and she'll repeat it back. She's like, "My job is to teach you Spanish." Yeah. All right, cool, oh, that's man. That's fucking cool. hilarious. So, yeah, yeah I'm awesome. like, I'm like the, you know, I'm the, I'm the kind of ignorant immigrant dad yeah. who doesn't speak the language and like. That's but, so fucking um, cool, man. Uh, in terms of just thinking of it, you know, being a, a father myself, um, is there a, a thought process or a plan in terms of like what your guy's goal is once she's at that school age? Like, is it, I mean, cause at this point it's like, do you go with like a Mexican based curriculum, an American, uh, a Canadian, like in, in school, an online thing? Like what are, what are your guys' plans as far as that goes? Or have you thought that far ahead? We've thought about it and discussed it a lot. And it's, I think it's inevitably going to be a bridge that we cross when we get there. Yeah. Uh, but there are school opportunities that, I mean, they have a Sierra school and a Waldorf school, not too far yeah. from where we're at. And they're, they're, they're small. There's plenty of opportunity between my wife's job and mine to homeschool. Um, you know, she, my, my wife's the educated one. She's the one with a master's degree. And like, so she has elements uh, that she can teach. I can teach other things. Not that that's optimal, but there's yeah. also so much more opportunity now, especially yeah. due to due to our current situation with online schooling. So yeah. um, I think as long as we have an internet connection, that it's probably going to look like something hybrid, where maybe half of the time, uh, maybe one semester of the year, that she's in a physical brick and mortar school, and then we're traveling through other parts, and she's keeping up on her coursework that way through me and through yeah. mom. Um, but uh, we'll see. She's three and a half yeah. and um, she's already in a kinder care, you know, where she's got four or five other kids with her. And they're all like some of them only speak Spanish and some of them only speak English. And they're really learning through each other. And that's a really that's to cool. me, that's a really cool thing because like I, you know, that's an opportunity. Like I've always wanted to, to be fluent in, in multiple languages, but like to have it integrated at that age is. Yeah, yeah. yeah there's there's no. uh There's no compensation or there's there's no ability to recreate that. I mean, you know, no matter. How, how good you are, how, how much you know, aptitude you have towards language. I mean, learning it at, at that age is, is second to none. I, I do, I think that that's a, a great, um, you know, plan or, or foot forward in terms of her, because I do think it's uh, imperative that kids go to school with other kids, mm -hmm. you know, f for at least part of, of the, the time, because the, the social interaction and, uh, you know, the, the street smarts, if you will, and then the networking. And, you know, I mean, that's a big part of fucking life. Social that, uh, skills. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I know people never step foot in a university, but, you know, they're incredibly successful because they have terrific social skills. Yeah. Um, On the transverse, I know people that are, you know, have PhDs that are socially fucking inept, yeah. you know, that you can't hardly have a goddamn conversation with them. I mean, it's just painful. Uh, so, yeah, that's uh, that's really neat, man. It's a uh, it sounds like a hell of a thing you have going on, but uh, at any rate, where where can people find you and and uh, you know if they if they want to check your books out? I know most of them are, are available on Amazon, including the ones that you've collabed uh, with people. But uh, is there kind of a one stop shop if people want to either get a hold of you, find out more, or uh, stalk you in any way? I yeah, I try to make myself as easily findable on the internet and as difficult to find as possible in person. Right, so like <laughs> I live on a combo. I live on a street that doesn't have a name and yeah. like I don't have an address and all that. But if you pretty much type in Leo Jenkins to Instagram, Google, Twitter, yeah. Facebook, not Leroy Jenkins, not Leroy, Leroy. <laughs> yeah, I uh, yeah. Um, yeah, just, I mean, it's Leo underscore Jenkins and, and this and that. You type in Leo Jenkins into Amazon. All my books are there. Yep. If you go uh, through my publisher's website, uh, Dead Reckoning Co., um, this book right now, Lucky Joe, is available. You get signed copies of this. Oh, cool. And then my previous book, um, War and Pieces, 
uh, is on there as well. Um, and then there's talk right now of bringing some of my previous works under their, their moniker. Uh, awesome, awesome company, awesome veteran-owned, operated publishing company that's doing a lot of good right now for uh, veteran literature awesome. um, and, and like really getting behind um, you know, we were talking about before, like, who are the people who are writing? Like, we're trying to be those people now, you know, like guys like David Rose, uh, um, who's done four or five books as well, coming out of a recon marine uh, background. And we here now we finally have this this company with Dead Reckoning that is like, we want to be that support uh, to get you guys to, to that point and people. Um, and so that all you have to focus on is writing, writing yeah. these stories. And uh, like for this is for me is my first um, venture into fiction. So to be able to do like what Tolkien did and take those experiences and turn them into these uh, parables and these stories that um, that you can um, you know you can educate people with without it being like and this happened in Iraq and then this you know like yeah. like we we did those books and those books were important um, and now we're 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 doing other stuff with it but that company Dead Reckoning Co is uh, um, is a good place to find signed copies and then Amazon of course is cool but. Um, the all 100% of the proceeds, if you go through Dead Reckoning, it's either going to a veteran-owned and operated publishing company or directly to me. I make more money that way, you know. Yeah. Uh, Amazon, again, good distribution, but we're trying to take the their cut out. They've got enough yeah. money. Yeah, no so. shit. But that said, they're all there on Amazon as well. Okay, that's great stuff. Uh, is there a work of yours that you're most proud of? Um, kind of... Uh, I'm proud that I'm continuing to, 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 to work at this, you know, because I'm not, I know I'm not there yet. And I really think I'm just getting warmed up. Um, I, I think the thing that I'm, I'm the most excited about is always the thing that I'm currently working on. And it's a weird thing with, with writing is like a lot of these projects, like, like this book, I finished this book months ago and I'm, I'm already working on two new books. And so like, I'm like the work is I think what I'm proud of. Yeah. And uh, there's not one, I, 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 I like that there's not one thing that I'm hanging my hat on. Cause like I had the war memoir book, unless we forget. And then I had the transition book with on assimilation. I had the travel book with first train out of Denver and then a couple collections of poetry. And, and actually right now I feel really good about I'm the, uh, the, the editor for um, two different, two volumes of, of poetry that's collected all by veterans. Right. So we put the net out there and said, if you're a veteran and you're writing, Give us your work, submit it, and we just did a, the the second volume, which is called War and After. It just it just hit um, like three weeks ago, and to be able to give a voice to a couple of hundred people who didn't have you know platform before, and to take that highly condensed, emotionally packed material in a in a, in a poem, these experiences that we have, um, and uh, to give that to the general public and say, this is what we, you know, not just one person, not just me went through, but um, this is this is our generation, our, our GWAT generation. Yeah. Um, and they're true poet warriors um, who are able to condense those intense um, situations into and experiences into this beautiful poetry and raw and like guttural um so being able to be the editor for that and to introduce that and to to be the one to to kind of have uh put that out uh, it's not my work uh, but i'm really proud that um i've gotten to a point where i can help other people get their work out yeah no i mean that's a hugely important part of it you know i think that's where a lot of guys struggle is they don't even they don't know what they don't know you know and it's hard for them to even get started so uh, fucking great on you, man. Last question. Uh, in the medic in you, do you keep a fucking med kit 
like a stout med kit at the house on you when you travel all the time or i got one in each car and uh two in the house yeah yeah like if you if you're traveling traveling do you keep one in your backpack or anything uh if i'm if it depends on the type of travel yes i always have some type of um for this type of event i don't you know what i mean like i didn't like when we left uh because i got a fucking blowout because i I was pretty confident that you were going to have what we needed right so like uh um you know i think the 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 best uh piece of equipment in any medics uh arsenal is their mind yeah right it's uh it's their ability to react to a situation um and you know just like you know there's plenty of things in this room that could be used as a weapon there's also plenty of things in this uh room that you can improvise and use you know uh, pack a wound with this fucking mic uh mic sponge uh, uh, you know maybe maybe with a you know piece of clothing or something like yeah. that you can get it done you know i got a miller light tall boy tall uh, boy yeah. that'll take care of just about anything yeah here. right if, yeah. if all else fails put alcohol on yeah, it yeah fucking like <laughs> set it on fire uh, I appreciate the hell out of you taking the time to come on. You're a fascinating guy. Uh, you've done a, an amazing, uh, a lot of amazing things, and uh, and it's an honor to sit down with you. I appreciate you you coming on. It was a true pleasure. Thank yeah. you so much. I'd like to take a quick second uh, to shout out and thank our sponsor for today's podcast, Origin Labs and Jocko Fuel. Jocko Fuel is a great product. Uh, he's got a ton of products, actually, within the Jocko Fuel line. Uh, the guests and I enjoy them on the show. And outside, I take a lot of the supplements. Uh, I've got some of the Origin Lab jeans, uh, boots, geese, and uh, it's just an all-around American industry. Uh, they do a fantastic job really re-revolutionizing American industry from start to finish. It's all American-made, uh, all American-sourced. Everything start to finish is made right there in-house, and they really do a phenomenal job creating the products and fulfilling the whole ball of wax. They've been a huge supporter of the Mic Drop podcast for a while now, and I really can't thank Jocko Fuel and Origin Labs enough for the job that they do for us. And so thank you to you guys. I'd also like to say thank you to our other sponsor, Resilience Premium CBD. Resilience is excited to offer all Mic Drop listeners a 20% off discount on all products for two weeks from when this podcast is live using the discount code MICDROP at checkout. That's two words, MICDROP at checkout. I'd also like to say that Resilience is a great company Uh, that works in conjunction with Trico CBD. And all military veterans and first responders receive 35% off. Yes, that's 35% off for all military veterans and first responders. And that's uh, through the military and first responders program. You just have to sign up at resiliencecbd.com slash military first responders discount. In terms of about resilience, generally speaking, it's a premium CBD that I use. Again, it works in conjunction with the Tricos brand for the everyday athlete. Uh, That's www.resiliencecbd.com. And resilience was uh, really born with the founders who uh, are military veterans as well. Personally experienced the effects uh, and impact that CBD had on their own mental and physical obstacles. Their focus was sharper, mental stress was calmed, fitness stamina increased, and their bodies felt less pain, inflammation after super intense workouts. Uh, A lot of times, most people and and people are able to either wean off entirely or significantly reduce pain uh, pain management therapy. This is a shared vision among the founders that this uh, incredible supplement had not only changed their lives, but had the power to provide unbelievable benefits to family, friends, athletes, fellow veterans, and ultimately the entire fitness community. So big shout out to Resilience for their product as well as the Trico stuff. Uh, we sure appreciate their support. Uh, my my pleasure is all mine for sure. And to you assholes, uh, I want to thank you as always for, uh, for tuning in uh, show after show. 
and uh, continuing to give Mike Drop Podcast the support that you guys do. Without you guys, we wouldn't be where we're at. So uh, until next time, choke yourself. And this is Mike Drop. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast, with first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.